Cherry Hill Volvo, we have absolutely incredible offers and a plethora of both new and certified Volvos from which to choose. We are eager to offer amazingly competitive prices, plus an additional $1,000 Costco discount on all new Cherry Hill Volvos. When leasing or purchasing a new or certified Cherry Hill Volvo, you become a valued part of our team. Join Cherry Hill Volvo for the pricing and attention you deserve. I am Judith Krepnick, president of Cherry Hill Volvo. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. WPHD, WPHD, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. The revolution will be broadcast. This is the next generation of talk. Now, on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, Rich Zioli. Well, they threatened to throw Donald Trump out of court today. That's right. In the defamation case, the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, they threatened to throw him out of court for his audible comments. We'll grab those audible comments for you if they uh, are available. The president responded with four words. I would love it. Yes, one, two, three, four. Welcome back to the show. Glad you're here today. It is Wednesday, 855-839-1210. And on Twitter, at Rich Zioli. Today is also a very important day before the United States Supreme Court. Uh, you keep hearing about fishing and herring and herring fishing boats, but this case has much broader implications than just fishing boats and herring. And, uh, you know, watching the coverage today, it's, I've been a little frustrated by this because they keep talking about what a burden this is on fishermen. And it is. I agree. It absolutely is. But it's a bigger question before the court today, which is the power of the administrative state. It's just the, the particular uh, group that the government is busting the chops of right now happens to be herring boat fishermen but it doesn't change the fact that still uh the administrative state is what is at issue and does the administrative state have too much power and does the administrative state make law when it's not supposed to because that's supposed to be left to congress so those are the questions before the high court today uh nikki haley will have a town hall on cnn tonight so be a very friendly audience for her. And we're also going to talk about what's going on in Pennsylvania. Citizens Alliance is going to join us a little bit later in the show today. Uh, we have a problem, a gaping problem potentially in Pennsylvania, unless we can really get out the vote and knock on doors. So we're going to talk to the door-knocking guru to see how we can take back Pennsylvania in 2023. And also, we're going to talk about something that is um, very, very close to my heart. It is uh, regarding when you want to talk about reigning in the administrative state, which I, I think is, is the heart of everything. It's the idea that a bunch of these unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats in these god-awful, faceless, nameless buildings in D.C., uh, and they're terrible. I mean, they, you're about like H Street and I Street, and they're just these big monoliths, you know, that they have too much power. 
and at the heart of that is, well, overturning Chevron, the Chevron deference doctrine, which is what the court is hearing today, which basically tells the administrative state, yeah, you know what? You figure it out. And if you got to add laws, if you got to add regulations, if you got to add fines, if you got to add jail time, if you need to arbitrarily decide that fishing boat monitors have to be paid by the fishing boat company, yeah, do whatever you want. And then the other aspect of the administrative state is how do you fire these bums, these bureaucrats? Like Senator Rand Paul was on last night on Fox News, and he was talking about how to hold Dr. Anthony Fauci, Asanto Fauci, Anthony Fauci, the nation's leading infectious disease doctor. You always have to say that by law, of course. You know, how do you hold them accountable? How do you hold the guy accountable? And that's the problem is how do you hold these bureaucrats accountable? That's that's a real issue. And then the other thing that's going on today. So so to answer that question is, is something that the Heritage Foundation has decided to do, which is create a roadmap to reigning in the executive. And you reign in the executive branch of government, believe it or not, by returning power to the president, which I know sounds crazy. But the president is accountable to the people and also to Congress. I mean, even a lame duck president is accountable to Congress. But bureaucrats are not. In fact, bureaucrats in many instances in the executive branch of government can't even be fired. Can't even be fired. By the way, a Maine judge has delayed a decision in the Trump ballot case. That's, you know, after the Secretary of State of Maine said Trump is is not eligible to be on the ballot there um, until the Supreme Court rules on the Colorado case. So the Supreme Court's going to hear that case in a couple weeks on February 9th, I think it is. And then on that, whatever the, whatever the date is. And then at that point, then the Supreme Court will, I would imagine, um, make a ruling very, very quickly. But they don't have to. It's up to them. They can wait till June to make a ruling. They don't have to make. I mean, it's, what the court does is whatever the court's going to do. But I just want to give you that little update on that. And also we have the WEF going on, the World Economic Forum. Yes, all of the masters of the universe are gathered in Davos so they can figure out how to make us eat more bugs and control our future about everything. And you got to hear some of the kookery coming out of Davos today. I mean, talking about how um, fishing is ecocide, farming is ecocide. How the world needs to have its own doctrine of of rights. Basically, the world, as in the planet Earth, needs its own doctrine of human rights. And then, of course, there's John Kerry, who uh, we're told is going to be stepping down as the climate czar, who got called out on the fact that the guy flies on private jets to Davos. Oh, you know, speaking of environmental nuttery, our friends over at SaveJersey.com, my buddy Matt Rooney, they had a piece yesterday about how in New Jersey where His Royal Highness King Philip the Unaccountable, his royal rugness, banned the use of plastic bags. It's actually resulted in, wait for it, more plastic. That's right. King Philip the Unaccountable, his royal rugness, his his bag ban in New Jersey has increased plastic consumption and the state's carbon footprint. According to a new report from the Fredonia Group, part of a third-party market research firm, the Garden State's much-celebrated but persistently controversial retail plastic bag prohibition not only increased plastic consumption, but also increased emissions. Fredonia interviewed retailers, their suppliers, and plastic bag distributors, among other stakeholders, before arriving at some objectively jarring conclusions for environmentalists who champion the bag ban as an important step towards attacking plastic waste and the purported negative associated environmental side effects. Now, the reason for this, of course, is that all those reusable bags you use, they're made out of, wait for it, 
plastic or the processing that's, uh, that's used to create them involves fossil fuels in some way, shape, or form. I know it's shocking, right? In 2022, following implementation of the New Jersey bag ban, total bag volumes declined by more than 60% to 894 million bags. However, the study also found, following New Jersey's ban on single-use bags, the shift from plastic film to alternative bags resulted in a nearly three times increase in plastic consumption for bags. At the same time, six times more woven and non-woven polypropylene plastic was consumed to produce the reusable bags sold to consumers as an alternative. Most of these alternative bags are made with non-woven polypropylene, which is not widely recycled in the United States and does not typically contain any post-consumer recycled materials. But there's more. The shift in material also resulted in a notable environmental impact. With the increased consumption of polypropylene bags contributing to a 500% increase in greenhouse gas emissions compared to non-woven polypropylene bag production in 2015. Notably, non-woven polypropylene which, by the way, was my Van Halen cover band name in college. We are non-woven polypropylene. And we crushed it at the VU, just saying. The dominant alternative bag material contains over 15 times more plastic and generates more than five times the amount of GHG emissions during the production per bag than polyethylene plastic bags. Yeah, the ones you used to get. The law of unintended consequences, something we talk about on this show all the time, has once again struck its ugly head. But it gets better. And there's more. Reusable bags are apparently utilized only a handful of times on average, two to three instances before being trashed by consumers, which means they're not doing much to combat, quote unquote, climate change. Quite the opposite. In fact, meanwhile, retailers are making a major mint. During 2022 alone, New Jersey retailers averaged eye-popping 60 to 70% profit margins on the sale of the incorrectly named reusable bags. A batch of 50 stores analyzed by Fredonia cumulatively profited to the tune of $42 million from selling bags. Now, myself, personally, I have a ban on buying these things. I won't do it anymore. I just refuse. I refuse. I, I ran into Wegman's eggs. I needed one thing. And then one thing turned into five things. And I went to the checkout line, and I carried all these things bundled in my arms and walked out the store. I refuse to. I just refuse. It's a matter of principle at this point. And, yeah, I may drop things. I may shove things in my pockets. This is also why retail theft has increased as well. Because how do you really know if somebody is stealing stuff or they just or walking out because they forgot their bag. You don't. And the other thing, too, that happened is a lot of people started taking home those little handy little carry baskets, you know? So now stores have these big signs that say, please don't bring the carry baskets out to your car. They have to remain here, but that's okay. So you load up the grocery car, and maybe you scan every other item, and you load it into the cart, and then you wheel the cart out, you load all the crap into your trunk, and then you just leave the car sitting there. Uh, what are they going to do? I mean, the, the stores don't want to challenge their customers. They don't want to go up to them. They're terrified to do this. And they're, they don't, don't want to be accused of racism or anything like that. That's for sure. Uh, and since I'm Italian, I'm going to turn to them and say, what, do you assume that we're all in the mafia? Is that what it is? Huh? Is that why you're asking me? And so I just, I just carry all this stuff out. I do this, I do this all the time. This is what I do. And yeah, I, I, I tend to, you know, shove things in pockets and coats 
Now, I'm an honest person, so I pay for everything. But I could see if you weren't an honest person, how easy it'd be to do this. They have somebody standing there to monitor everybody at the self-checkout line. But come on, you know as well as I do that sometimes things slip through the cracks. Anyway, it's a stupid idea. It's another one of those virtue signaling, lefty, uh, ridiculous, useless, nonsensical ideas that they come up with because it makes people feel good. Hey, New Jersey, we're going to ban plastic bags. (laughs) And why not allow us to use paper bags? I mean, paper bags are great and they're recycled. You can recycle them. Most of them are made from post-consumer waste. And also trees grow back. But it's, you see, that's the thing. None of this stuff makes any sense. It's all done deliberately just to make your life a living hell. It really is. It's the only reason. It's the only justification for it. They go, well, wouldn't it be fine just to give out paper since you could recycle paper? I mean, it's recycling day and you just throw it right into the uh, thing. But you can't put plastic bags in there. But you can put a paper bag in there. Sure you could. It's paper. So that's the thing. If you wanted to recycle paper bags, you could because they're made from paper. You can't recycle the plastic bags, even the single-use ones, because they get caught up in the mechanism. That's why one time I had the recycling police, no joke, this is no joke, folks, actually came to my house and left a note in my big recycling bin. Because I apparently, it wasn't me, it was Mama Zioli. They were watching the kids. And when they took the recycling out, they put it in, you know, and we typically have it in a big garbage bag. And then here's what I do. I dump that big garbage bag into the big blue recycling bin, and then I throw out that plastic bag that all the recyclables were in. So now I'm adding another plastic bag to the landfill. Look at me. So I throw that stuff in the recycling bin, knowing none of it's going to get recycled. Because none of it gets, you know that, right? And that's the other little scam that's going on. None of it gets recycled. They're burning all of it, uh, or they're, they're shipping it to India and maybe falling. It kind of gets thrown overboard. They're not really recycling anything. That's the other big scam. But anyway, I'll come back to that. So when if you were to leave in one of those big plastic garbage bags, the recycling police will yell at you, and they'll leave you a nasty note. You can't do this because it interferes with our machine, and so they won't even take your recycling. And that's what they did to me that one day. Put a nasty note. It was the Burlington County Recycling Police Department or whatever it is. I don't know. It's like Burlington County Recycling Law and Order. Dun, dun. They put a big note. They said, we're not taking your recycling this week because uh, you put in a plastic bag. So to teach you a lesson, we're not going to take it. Of course, I promptly then loaded everything that was in the recycling bin into a large plastic garbage bag, a contractor bag, and just threw it the hell out. Because I'm not going to let them win, A, and also they're not recycling it anyway, B, and C, if you're going to be spiteful with me, I'll be spiteful right back with you. And D, the statute of limitations has long since passed for me to go to jail for this. But I digress. The point is that it's just another stupid, useless law that has unintended consequences of actually doing more to hurt the environment. And the environment was all the rage today at the WEF, the World Economic Forum, although um, Javier Mele, my favorite politician in the world, elected politician in the world, he's the president of Argentina. He gave a resounding speech today. I encourage you to watch it. It's 20 minutes of just bashing socialism. It was great. But I'll I'll play a clip a little bit later. He just um, makes a very strong stand for freedom. He's the guy that the media refers to all the time as being far, far right. The far right Argentinian president, Javier Mele. You know, that's the thing. Um, 
far right is a media it's an insult you know that the media gives out you know you're far right so they put they, they give you that insult they never call anybody far left no matter how kooky nuttery you are on the left and that's pretty much everybody on the left these days they they don't they never refer to you as far left because you're reasonable in their eyes so you know if you're like Javier Javier Mele and you're trying to actually reduce Argentina's inflation which is at I think 300,000% or some it's a high number I know that uh then you're a far right politician see it's an insult it's a they they do that deliberately on purpose the guy's a libertarian he stands for freedom he might have a little thing with his sister i, I don't know i've heard it doesn't matter but the point is that uh he's all about freedom and liberty and for that reason they hate his guts they hate him because the WEF is all about control. Uh, you, you listen to these people from the World Economic Forum in Davos, and I don't know if you were invited or not. I did not get invited, although it's possible maybe my invitation was lost in the mail since we moved. And, you know, the forwarding address thing sometimes has complications. But I don't think I was invited to Davos this year. The people that were, though, they sit around for the most part. They talk about all kinds of different ways they can empower bureaucrats and take away more of your freedom. And destroy sovereignty of the united states of america i'll give you a couple examples like they bring up disease x it's this mythical disease and how if it ever comes out how they're all going to lock everybody down and have a world council that will decide how we will govern as a world a global pandemic incidentally i have a story for you (laughs) shocking enough it's coming out of china i know you're as just shocked as i am a new covid19 strain that has a 100 percent kill rate they made this in the lab where in china says who who the world health the world health uh, organization that's who but anyway so all these people sit around at davos and they all figure out how they can take away more and more of your freedom over diseases over the environment over whatever it is tell you what to eat what you can eat what you can do what you can't do and they they are the the richest most powerful people in the world and they all gather there after flying on private jets and taking their yachts and then being uh, ferried around throughout davos in big black suburbans and don't forget even if they're green even if they're uh, electric and renewable you still got to charge them so they got to hook up to some sort of power grid of some sort and those batteries, of course, which come from China, because China has the world's biggest supply of those rare minerals. And China uses a lot of slave labor to get those kids to bring out those valuable rare minerals so we can make all those batteries. And other countries around the world do this as well, in Africa, for example. But who cares? As long as that SUV that's driving around some bureaucrat at Davos, some some WEF some wef big wig bond villain as long as that guy can say my car is renewable rechargeable whatever then he feels good and he's a good person and you're not and that's the key you're not a good person they are good people and you're not i'm not remember that <laughs> and they remind us of that all the time they do they remind us of that all the time uh, at the the world economic forum which by the way is the big story of the day today brought to you by my buddy dr mike venaria venariadental.com he's the man he's my dentist and you should make an appointment to see him bridget went to see him this morning as a matter of fact venariadental.com they remind us of this all the time because they really do have this mindset that we are all idiots and that's why one of the people at the wef actually said we need more government control to handle disinformation 
Surprisingly, there's a story today that the Department of Justice has finally once and for all acknowledged what we've all always known. The Hunter Biden laptop is real. It's real and it's spectacular. That's right. They're acknowledging this. And of course, we knew that they knew this. But the unholy triad of big tech, the corporate media and government did its thing to tell us all it was disinformation, Russian disinformation. And at the left today, they talked about how they can have more government control to ensure that we crack down on disinformation. So we'll have that for you as well. So we got a lot of good stuff today. We got local, we got national, we got Supreme Court, we got the uh, impending New Hampshire primary. And Donald Trump says exactly what I've been saying, that Nikki Haley is being propped up by Democrats who are allowed to vote in the open primary in New Hampshire. 855-839-1210. On Twitter, at Rich Zioli. Big show for you today. Do not go away. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. The Zioli Show on your schedule from Talk Radio 1210 WPHT in the free Odyssey app. So do the rich and powerful people have the power. Henry, did you get that nice email from Richard in Walla Walla, Washington? I did. I, I That was very nice of him. It was very nice of Richard in Walla Walla, Washington. He sent a nice note to me to please pass on to Henry about uh, Henry's musical selections during the show and how pleased he was with them. Yeah, uh, an email like that will keep me coming in upright every day. So I, I really appreciate that, Richard. <laughs> Thank you to our buddy Richard Richard in Walla Walla, Washington, and um, Richard Richard in Walla Walla. So, yeah, if you want to tweet along the show as well, and you can thank Henry for the great music by going uh, on X at Rich Zioli or at Henry. By the way, I was just thinking about that the other day. So, Henry has your your Twitter handle, your X handle is at Henry. I I mean, that's the name that's on there. But that's a pretty cool at Henry, you know what I'm saying? No, well, it's not at Henry. That's just oh, the, it's not. That's just my name. That's just the name. Oh, you don't have at Henry. No, that'd be really cool. Oh, I thought you snagged I, at no, Henry. No, I, I could have made a career off that. That'd have been valuable. Yeah, yeah, just, you would have sold that. hundred uh, percent. 
Yeah, no, I was, whatever, seven when Twitter came out. I wasn't thinking, like, I got to snag that username. That'll be a and good DeSantis one. is is the, is is the word? Is it like Matt H. DeSantis? It's just a terrible. What what is yours again? I think it is Matt H. DeSantis. Yeah. Yeah, Matt H. DeSantis. <laughs> it was that. It options. still says. By the way, it still says Tom Cruise follows me. Who's the loser now, Mom? You've not updated it. You haven't put anything on about the show. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> well, I, that's been my little slogan for quite some time. Ever since Tom Cruise followed me, actually. Does which was I don't believe Tom Cruise ago. still follows you. He does still follow me. It's a fact. You can you can check. Why? Why does he follow me? I don't know, but he does. Tom Cruise and I, I, I are he's best com- pals. He's coming after you. He's not coming after me. He's 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 plotting something. Do you owe him money? Is that why? Do you owe Tom Cruise money? <laughs> you owe the church I, money? I don't think Tom Cruise is hurting for cash. See, I'm looking at verified followers, and I don't see Tom Cruise coming up here. Oh, man. If he unfollowed me, this is devastating. I'd rather not know. Um, let's see. Let's check my followers. Let's see if we got Tom. You know what? I'll just go to Tom Cruise and see if he... Assuming that Tom Cruise is is verified. He may not be. He is verified. And he still follows me. He still follows you. Yeah, I can send you a screenshot right now. Yeah, I don't believe that. I'm sending you the screenshot right now. He's doctoring it right now. I'm not. He's pulling up Photoshop Express on his phone. That's not true. Look. I think it is. Look, it said. Look at. It says Tom Cruise at Tom Cruise verified follows you. He's got seven million followers. Show me. I'm right here. Uh, well, I'm sending it to Rich. Forty-eight point five thousand. He's following forty-eight point five thousand people, and Matt DeSantis happens to be one of them. How? But how did that happen? That Tom Cruise followed you. How did that occur? He must have liked my content. Slip of the thumb. Yeah. <laughs> Slip on no. past the goalie. The what, um. What, what if he's th- a huge fan of the show? Maybe he follows you. Have you checked? <laughs> No, I have not checked it, but he plays a fighter pilot, and I think he would be very excited if we had gotten Miss America on, who is an actual fighter pilot. <laughs> Maybe she'll be in a Top Gun 3. I see that's in production already. She should. I mean, that's what they should do, but she, they, they probably won't because uh, she was on Fox News today, so you can imagine where her political leanings are, and she's in the military, so that may not happen. Although the, the Tom Cruise movie, the last one, was very pro-America, I thought, Top Gun Maverick, so I, Yeah, I don't think perhaps. Tom Cruise will let uh, political bias play a factor in making a good movie because I think that's all he cares about is if the movie is the best it can be. Like he, That's it. That's yeah. all he cares about. Uh, thank you to Rich Cassie Jr. on Twitter. He said only Rich Zioli could talk about Russian disinformation and reference Seinfeld. It's real and it's spectacular. Well done, my friend. Well done. Thank you for noticing that. I appreciate that. always like to know you're paying attention. Uh, let's see. What else? You never mentioned that Judge KJB had to recuse in Chevron. Okay. Well, I haven't talked about Chevron yet, Road Warrior, so why don't you freaking relax? <laughs> Long show. <laughs> yeah. It's not really an episode of the Rich Zioli show if Road Warrior doesn't get yelled at. Yeah, he's criticizing me for something I haven't said on a topic I haven't done yet. <laughs> we, have, we even have it's a amazing. guest on that topic later in the show, Road Warrior. Yeah. Hang on. Yeah. Why, why haven't you mentioned this about a topic you haven't talked about yet? Uh, let's see. We have some uh, some audio. Speaking of, um, of the upcoming... Uh, New Hampshire primary, which is just going to be very, very, very uh, soon. Ramaswamy, Vivek Ramaswamy is going to be playing a, a big role in the Trump campaign. He came out last night. He said, Nikki, Ron, you got to get out. You got to get out. Do the country a service and drop out right now. Uh, one of them will and one of them will not. My my prediction is that Ron DeSantis will if he's smart, um, Nikki Haley will not. She'll go all the way to the convention here because she's 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 got the backing of the establishment. 
establishment. She's the darling of the establishment. But here's what Ramaswamy said uh, last night, cut number two. You're calling on Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis to drop out right now. I am. And I do think that would be healthy for this country. And I think that, you know what, especially Ron DeSantis, at least of the two of them, will have an important role to play in the future of this country and leading this nation. I do believe that. But I think that the right thing to do right now is the people of this country through the Iowa caucus. It's the most grassroots process I've seen. I personally did over 390 events, built great relationships and goodwill. But the message they sent was clear. I think it's time to actually make sure we elect the right president, put America first, take the America first agenda to the next level. And you know what? America first is not even about Trump. It didn't start in 2016. That's right. It started in 1776. You're right. And so Donald Trump will be the right person to take this forward for the next four years. But we need to start laying down the foundation for this to live another 250 years. All right. And then some. And I do think that this is the right next step for us to take, which is why I proudly endorsed Donald Trump last night. There you go. And uh, when it comes to Nikki Haley, Trump said it out loud. He, he said what I've been saying, which is that basically she's being propped up by Democrats. And she is because that's the thing. And um, in New Hampshire, Democrats can vote in the primary. We played you that random New Hampshire voter who just randomly decided she's going to vote for Nikki Haley and just randomly wound up on a national news show. Um, but you know what? J.P. Morgan, the the CEO there, the big guy, Jamie Dimon, uh, came out and said something today that is making a lot of news today. And he's basically saying Trump is right about a lot of things and, and maybe people should stop scapegoating his voters. Imagine that. You know how everybody's always saying that Trump voters are crazy, you're crazy MAGA, you're going to destroy the country. And like, For example, a little bit later, I'll play you a clip from Kamala Harris on The View where, you know, how scared should you be of MAGA? And she's terrified of MAGA. But what J.P. Morgan, uh, I mean, what, what Jamie Dimon says here is very accurate. It's very apropos, and he's not wrong. Uh, cut number nine. I, I think it's a mistake to assume that everything's hunky-dory. And, you know, and when stock markets are up, it's kind of like this little drug we all feel like it's just great. You know, but remember, we've had so much fiscal and monetary stimulation. So I'm a little more on the cautious side that we are facing a lot of things in 20 and 24 or 25. And you we mentioned Ukraine, the terrorist activity in Israel, the Red Sea quantitative tightening, which I still question if we understand exactly how that works. I don't think we do. How QE actually worked, what the effect of negative, you know, zero rates was for all this time, uh, and obviously the politics. And, you know, and then the Ukrainian war is affecting oil, gas, food, migration. So you exactly. have all these very powerful forces that are going to be affecting us in 24 and 25. So if I was the government, I would be preparing for what I'm going to do about that, assuming things aren't good. And I just also want to point out, I, I wish the Democrats would think a little more carefully when they talk about MAGA, you know, and you, if you travel this country, you know, and the country's unbelievable. We took our bus trip this year and Leslie Picker was on Spokane and Boise and Bozeman. People are growing. They're hungry to grow. They're innovating. It's, it's everywhere. It's not just Silicon Valley. So we've got this great hand. But when people say MAGA, they're actually looking at people voting for Trump and they think they're voting and they're basically scapegoating them that you are like him. Uh, and but I don't think they're voting for Trump because of his family values. And if you look, just take a step back, be honest. He's kind of right about NATO, kind of right about immigration. Mm-hmm. 
He grew the economy quite well. China, Trade, China ta- virus. Tax reform worked. Yeah. He was right about some of China. I don't. Th- I don't like no, what he did. No, I said China virus. Yeah, I understand. When he, when he may have been right. He, he, and I don't like how he said things about I Mexico. I don't like. But he wasn't wrong about some of these critical issues, and that's why they're voting for him. And and I think people should be a little more respectful of our fellow citizens. And when you guys have people up here, you should, have, you should always ask the why. Not like it's a binary thing. You're supporting right. Trump. You're not supporting Trump. Why are you supporting Trump? It's hard to Trump? hate 75 million of your fellow Americans. And it's, I, I agree. It's done quite well. And, you know, the it. Democrats have done a pretty good job with the deplorables, not, hugging onto their Bibles and their beer and their guns. I mean, really? Like, can we just stop that stuff and actually grow up and treat other people with respect and listen to them a little bit? Boom. Jamie Dimon with a mic drop. He also said, if you don't control the borders, you're going to destroy our country. Wow. Uh, how soon do people cancel their Chase credit cards? 855-839-1210 on Twitter at Rich Zioli. All right, so we got to get into a lot of things, including Chevron. And I'll tell you if a Supreme Court justice recused herself or not <laughs> when I do this segment. But also more of the kookery from the WEF and Disease X. And also, what is China up to with a new virus that has a 100% kill rate? I'll talk about all those things with you. But listen, when it comes to healthcare, I trust Cooper. Cooper University Healthcare is South Jersey's leading academic health system for a reason. Cooper does outstanding care right close to home. And with more than 75 specialties, there is a practice for your family. The MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper is doing life-saving work. The Cooper Neurological Institute is changing the game when it comes to stroke, Alzheimer's. It's really, truly amazing. And with more than 75 specialties from pediatric to primary care to advanced surgical, especially surgical, excuse me, practices, uh, Cooper has a provider for you, including the Cooper Urgent Care Centers, which are staffed by the very same physicians and nurses you would see if you were brought to the Cooper emergency department which is a level one trauma center they're the same ones that you'll see at cooper urgent care that's why cooper urgent care stands out from all the other urgent care centers that are out there because the level of expertise of the doctors are they're truly emergency doctors so reach out today for an appointment by calling 1-800-8-COOPER or go to cooperhealth.org cooperhealth.org Thanks for listening to the Seoli Show podcast from Talk Radio 1210 WPHT and the Odyssey app. Fishing is genocide. That's right. Farming and fishing as well. It's it's ecocide is what they say at the WEF. Ecocide. Welcome back to the show. Glad you're here today. Busy Wednesday. We got a lot to cover for you. But the WEF, the World Economic Forum is going on. Anthony Blinken says, I don't see that we are close to a ceasefire in Ukraine. He said that at the WEF today. Um, the uh, horse face John Kerry had a lot to say about climate change. And I'm going to get into COVID in the next segment in a little bit as I also tie it into the Chevron decision. But before before I do, let me just share with you what the director general of the WHO, WHO, the World Economic Forum, that's WHO, what he said about COVID and being the first disease X. Disease X, it's um, attracting a lot of attention. And I hope you have seen in the social media. Um, but it's not a new idea. Um, the first time we used the terminology was in 2018. Um, the discussions were in 2017. I was just new director general. Uh, as you know, we annually list the emerging diseases. Uh, and uh, MERS could be one, Zika, <laughs> Ebola, those we know. But then we said there are things that are unknown that may happen. 
and anything happening is a matter of when, not if. So we need to have a placeholder for that, for the disease we don't know. That may come. And that was when we gave the name disease X. Um, so disease X is a placeholder for uh, unknown um, disease. Um, I just wanted to start by clarifying that because there is already a lot, a lot of attention. If I may, although COVID came immediately, uh, we were preparing for COVID-like uh, disease. You, you may even call COVID as the first disease X. And it may happen again. It may happen again. Of course it will. In fact, in the next uh, hour, I'm going to give you some details on how it already is happening again with what China is up to now. But I'm also going to tie this into the debate that's going on at the United States Supreme Court with Chevron, because I think all, all of this is about empowering bureaucracy, empowering bureaucrats. And that, to me, is the biggest lesson of COVID. It really is. The biggest lesson of COVID is that if we continue to empower bureaucrats, we, the people, will suffer. We, the people, will suffer from that in a big, big way. There's no, there's no question about that. We will. We we will we will suffer and I will explain all of that for you and I'll tie it into something that's beyond just simply fishing boats and herring fishing boats and everything else. Uh, Kamala Harris was asked today by the clapping uh, seals on the view today. um, Are you scared? Should you be scared if Trump gets reelected? The idiot vice president of the United States, because, of course, you know, ABC, Disney, China owns the view and the parent company, China. So ABC. Oh, is owned by Disney, which is owned by China. So it's ABC Disney China is the corporate title. But anyway, um, ABC News is a division of, of ABC Disney China. So ABC News also has, for example, the unbiased journalist George Stephanopoulos. No relation to the George Stephanopoulos that ran the Bill Clinton communications team. Um, George Stephanopoulos is the chief political guy for, for ABC News, which tells you everything you need to know about the corporate media. But anyway, the idiot vice president was asked today because uh, ABC is going to do everything that they possibly can to help Joe Biden and and the unholy triad of the media, corporate media, the government and big tech will all work together again once they once they will work together. You know, it's like it's that big story that came out. The Department of Justice finally confirmed the existence of the Hunter Biden laptop. The DOJ finally confirming the existence of the Hunter Biden laptop that we were all told was Russian disinformation. And the unholy triad of the corporate media, big tech, and government told us it was Russian disinformation. You remember all that? And now for the first time, the Department of Justice in a legal filing says, yes, the Hunter Biden laptop is real. They will always work together for the advancement of the left. Never forget that. Never forget it. And what are you going to do to stop the crazies? I am scared as heck. (laughs) Scared as heck. Which is why I'm traveling our country. You know, there's an old saying that there are only two ways to run Mm. for office, either without an opponent or scared. So on all of those points, yes, we should all be scared. We should all be scared of Trump because Trump is so evil. The Department of Justice acknowledges the Hunter Biden laptop content is legitimate for the first time. The DOJ has acknowledged the legitimacy of Hunter Biden's infamous laptop data for the first time in a new court filing. In a Tuesday court filing from DOJ prosecutors, which came in response to Biden's request to have his federal firearm charges dismissed, investigators acknowledge the legitimacy of data found on Biden's laptop prior to the 2020 election. 
Imagine that. The court filings described how IRS and FBI investigators had obtained a search warrant for tax violations on Biden, leading them to various backup data accounts. The documents additionally note that investigators later came into possession of the laptop that Biden had previously left at a computer store, emphasizing that investigators had already obtained a large portion of the data from Apple. Imagine that. By the way, FBI investigators found cocaine on the firearm pouch that Hunter Biden used. (laughs) I mean, obviously, you know, that's the same cocaine that the dogs got. Uh, in August 2019, IRS and FBI investigators obtained White House cocaine dogs, my summer blockbuster, coming to a theater near you. We need to see Oli Army movie night. Oh, that reminds me, by the way, February 7th is our uh, big event with Terry Hayes, the author of The Year of the Locust. I am loving this book. It's, it's amazing, intense. You want to understand how the CIA operates? You want to understand the danger posed by Iran? And, 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 and why the industrial military complex would love to see another war? you got to read this book. Most importantly, though, you got to join me on February 7th with Terry Hayes. Just go to 1210WPHT.com, 1210WPHT.com, and get your tickets for February 7th. It'll sell out. You're going to get a signed copy of Terry's book. You'll get to hear our conversation together on stage. It's going to be fantastic. In August 2019, IRS and FBI investigators obtained a search warrant for tax violations for the defendant's Apple iCloud account. In response to that warrant in September 2019, Apple produced backups of data from various of the defendant's electronic devices that he had backed up to his iCloud account. Investigators also later came into possession of the defendant's Apple MacBook Pro, which he had left at a computer store. A search warrant was also obtained for his laptop, and the results of the search were largely duplicative of information investigators had already obtained from Apple. Following the initial report on Biden's laptop from the New York Post, of course, backlash from Democrat officials, various media outlets and social media platforms ensued. Democratic operatives and their allies attempted to cast the findings from the laptop as Russian disinformation and the unholy triad of the corporate media, big tech, and the government kicked into high gear. The CIA... Doing its thing, 51 former national intelligence officials, all coming out to say it was a Russian information operation. Meanwhile, the entire time, the FBI knew it was real. The Russian disinformation narrative pushed by officials then led to both Facebook and Twitter censoring the New York Post reporting with sites like Politico claiming the story was false by using the former intelligence official's letter. President Joe Biden called the laptop contents Russian disinformation during his 2020 campaign and also using the intelligence official's letter as support. But even even though all that was happening, the FBI knew the contents of Biden's laptop were real due to an interview with Biden's former business associate, Tony Bobolinsky. The agency had previously interviewed Bobolinsky and um, they knew it was real. The new filings come as a response to Biden's investigation for gun charges, which his legal team attempted to argue in December should be dismissed. Biden was indicted in September of 2023 on three federal gun charges after he had allegedly illegally purchased a revolver as he was battling a drug addiction. Amazing. That amazing. How you have um, this unholy triad always doing its thing together, always working together, the corporate media, big tech, all these things. Now they found cocaine in Hunter's gun pouch. So Hunter Biden's arguing that this whole thing is unconstitutional, which is charming, and that um, he's now suddenly a big Second Amendment advocate, even though his father, Joe Biden, is president. 
pushed for this law that Hunter Biden would go to prison for over lying on a federal drug form. Oh, the irony is rich with these people, is it not? It is just so rich and delicious. I love it. It makes me so happy. It makes me so, so happy. The irony is just amazing. 855-839-1210 on Twitter at Rich Zioli. Coming up, the Chevron case before the Supreme Court. Is it really just about fish? No, it's about freedom. It is about freedom. And I'm going to tie it into you with the uh, attempts by the evil, evil Bond villains at the World Economic Forum in Davos to further take away your freedom. You do not want to miss that. But let me tell you about my friends at Cherry Hill Volvo because they are outstanding and I'm so grateful for their support. You know, in all these snowy, icy days, like I had to drive the kids to school today because their bus had broken down or something. I don't know. But I'm, I'm just happy about the fact that I can get them there safe and sound because Volvos are some of the safest cars on the road. Now, we have two SUVs in our family, but soon I'll be changing to a different Volvo because I'm in the Care by Volvo lease program, which gives you the ability every five months to change to a different Volvo, keep the Volvo you have, or cancel the lease altogether. And one low monthly payment from Cherry Hill Volvo includes your... Car insurance, prepaid schedule maintenance, tire and wheel care, 15,000 miles annually, and so much more. Excessive wear coverage. Cherry Hill Volvo is where you want to go. We broadcast live from the Cherry Hill Volvo studios every day, and they stand with us. And here's another incredible offer. Right now, you can buy an S60 courtesy vehicle for less than $29,000 with less than 5,000 miles on it. These are beautiful cars like new. Less than 5,000 miles. They're only used occasionally you know, to drive people uh, around valet service, loaner cars. They're kept in pristine condition. And the S-Class is made right here in the United States of America. And Cherry Hill Volvo needs to make room for their construction equipment for their big renovation. So that's why they're offering this amazing but very limited inventory of S60 courtesy cars for you today at Cherry Hill Volvo for less than twenty nine grand. And with less than 5,000 miles on it. This is a no-brainer. So reach out to them today. My great friends at Cherry Hill Volvo on Route 70 and Cherry Hill, where relationships matter. Rich Zioli, weekday afternoons, 3 to 7. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, and on the free Odyssey app. WOGL HD3 Philadelphia from the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. The revolution will be broadcast. This is the next generation of talk. Now on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, Rich Zioli. Will Chevron be overturned, and why should we care? And is it just about fish? Is it just about herring? That is the question before the United States Supreme Court today. Welcome back to the show. Glad you're here. 855-839-1210. On Twitter, at Rich Zioli on this Wednesday, Hump Day edition. Uh, as usual, the, uh, the liberal justices and Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson has had to recuse herself from this case because uh, she heard it on the district level. But uh, as, as you'd imagine, the liberal justices, Elena Kagan... The other wacky wackos, um, they, they love they love Chevron. What is Chevron? Chevron says that the administrative state gets to make the rules. That's it in a nutshell. You've heard a lot about fish. You've heard a lot about herring and herring fishing boats and how the fishing boat people have to have these federal monitors on board to hang out and uh, make sure they're fishing okay. And then in some cases now it's going to cost them more than they make per day, the, the fishermen. You know, some some idiot... 
nephew of some congressman needs a job and gets a job as a herring boat fishing manager and the administrative state has decided not only will you have a fishing boat monitor on board you're going to pay for it yeah how you doing i'm the uh i'm the herring fishing boat monitor yeah that's right and um yeah i i need a cool 750 a, a day this is the big story brought to you by our buddy dr mike venaria venariadental.com for all of your beautiful dental needs venaria dental v-a-n-a-r-i-a uh and justice neil gorsuch put it best today when he said you know, part of humility is to admit when you're wrong. When Chevron was first passed, Justice Antonin Scalia thought it was a good idea. But like all things in life, they have unintended consequences. So the court is now revisiting this and looking at the fact that as a result of what is known as the Chevron doctrine, Chevron deference, we have now turned over lawmaking to the, to the executive. We've turned over lawmaking to unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats who make decisions and they have no accountability to the people. Hence why they're unaccountable. Here's Justice Neil Gorsuch from today's argument. Justice Gorsuch. One lesson of humility is admit when you're wrong. Justice Scalia, who took Chevron, which nobody understood to include this two-step move as originally written, and turned it into what we now know. And late in life, he came to regret that decision. What do we make of that lesson about humility? No, I, look, I, I do think that, you know, reconsidering particularly a methodological error is part of judicial humility. And I do think if you look at Justice Scalia's Perez opinion, uh, the mortgage banker cases, one of the things he said there most clearly, but he said all along, was our decision in Chevron was completely heedless of Section 706 of the APA. And if you're looking for a special justification to overturn an opinion, I think whiffing on the underlying statute entirely has got to be at the top of the list. Thank you. Justice Kavanaugh? A couple questions. Um, first on Skidmore. Uh, now, the point that uh, Gorsuch is making here, and, and I don't want to get too in the, into the weeds on this because I don't want to put you to sleep, but the bottom line is this. You know, when you have something, whether it's a court decision or a law, that then spirals out of control, at what point do you rein this in? And, and, and you turn around and you say, all right, you know what? This is a mistake. This is being used in the wrong way. This is something that we have to remedy and, rect- and rectify here. At what point do you do that? And as usual, you know, the, the left hates the fact that Justice Neil Gorsuch is commenting on this in, in any way, shape, or form. They want him to recuse himself. He doesn't need to. But they know that he's going to vote against it. He wants to see Chevron go. And why? The reason why is because, you see, the left believes that bureaucrats are the enlightened ones. Government should decide everything in life, whether it's a banning Skittles or whether it's making you eat bugs. Government should decide everything. Every problem has a solution, and government bureaucrats can figure it out. And then you elect a conservative president. You elect a conservative Congress, if we can ever do that. And they turn around and they say no. But the bureaucrats entrenched in the federal government bureaucracy, they do it anyway. They do whatever they want. So, for example, a conservative president gets in there and says, I want to I want to make the EPA more business friendly. I want to I want to rein it in or I want to we are canceling this rule that the Department of Education is making, which is rewriting Title nine. It's a federal statute. Now they're rewriting it to say you have to include transgender people in in women's rights and education. 
And no, we're not doing these things. But what the left likes to think is that the bureaucrats will outlive the conservative politician, the conservative president, the conservative cabinet secretary, the conservative VPA administrator. And they're not wrong because we can't get rid of these bureaucrats. That's why we're trying to rein them in with the project that the Heritage Foundation is working on to rein in the administrative state. They're not wrong. These people don't leave. You know, you, you call in an exterminator and you hope, they, you hope they get the roaches out, but they find ways to survive. And that's the issue. So the cabinet secretary, say the EPA administrator, comes in, gives a big speech to all the employees. We are going to make the EPA more business friendly. We are going to turn around and we're going to make it easier to do business in this country. We're going to stop the war on coal, the war on natural gas, the war on oil. But the bureaucrats, you know, five floors below the administrator's office are all giggling to themselves like, we've heard this before. You're not going to be here that long. Maybe, maybe four years and maybe as an administrator, you'll stay too because you'll get bored and you'll hate the job and you want to go make money. So we're not really worried about this. We're going to do whatever we want to do anyway. And we're going to promulgate rules into the federal register and we're going to expand the size of government and we're going to go crazy with it and do whatever the hell we want to do. And we don't care if you as a conservative want to rein it in because we, we, we will out, we will outlive you. We will survive you. You can't really kill us. Ed Whelan, who's um, a great guy, and um, you know he's been tweeting about this all day today, and we're hoping to get him on the show. He says, you know, Justice Gorsuch is taking a leading role in oral arguments today, and it's making the left's head explode. Actually, this is Kerry Severino tweeting that. Of course, they knew he would, which is why they trotted out some of the most frivolous recusal arguments ever. There's absolutely no reason for Gorsuch to recuse himself. But the New Republic and all these other lefty sites want him to recuse himself. He, he doesn't need to. But basically, here, here's, here's the reality of what they're saying right now. This is, this is basically in a, in a nutshell. The, the left loves Chevron. And conservatives hate it because we don't want the administrative state to be able to make all the decisions in life. I'll give you a great example about the administrative state. Anthony Fauci, Asanto Fauci, the nation's leading infectious disease doctor. You know, these people who make decisions for us, whether it's about masks or vaccines or uh, they have so much power and they don't feel accountable in any way, shape or form. But even though the story came out that the Chinese lab in Wuhan, the WIV, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, mapped the deadly coronavirus pandemic two weeks before Beijing told the world. What? What? Who cares? The, the, the bureaucrats, well, they funded this. They paid for this. They're going to continue paying for this because they, do, they know there's no accountability for them and their actions. Chinese researchers isolated and mapped the viruses that caused COVID-19 in late December of 2019, at least two weeks before Beijing revealed details of the deadly virus to the world. Raising questions anew about what China knew in the pandemic's crucial early days. Documents obtained from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services by a House committee and reviewed by the Wall Street Journal show that a Chinese researcher in Beijing uploaded a nearly complete sequence of the virus's structure to a U.S. government-run database on December 28, 2019. Chinese officials at the time were still publicly describing the disease outbreak in Wuhan, China, as a viral pneumonia of unknown, unknown cause and had yet to close the Hunan Seafood Wholesale Market, site of one of the initial COVID-19 outbreaks. Now, not the source of the COVID-19 outbreak, even though someone did order, of course, an undercooked bat burger with a side of pangolin fries and a raccoon dog aioli, but that's not why COVID happened happened because of the lab but do you notice that 
You see, the, the U.S. government-run database had the structure of the virus, but the bureaucrats didn't do anything. And the bureaucrats were paying for the whole thing. There's no accountability for these people. China only shared the virus's sequence of the World Health Organization on January 11, 2020, according to U.S. government timelines of the pandemic. The new information doesn't shed light on the debate over whether COVID emerged from an infected animal or a lab leak. Right. But it suggests that the world still doesn't have a full accounting of the pandemic's origin. Of course, it settles a debate because obviously if they were able to map the virus and people were getting sick prior to December, we know it came from a lab because the military world games happened there in the fall. And don't tell me it was a coincidence that that this virus left the lab. I think it was a bioweapon. I think it was put out by China for a reason. And there's no question. And by the way, China's still up to it. You know, they're, they're, they're still going here. There's a New York Post story about this right now. Chinese lab crafts mutant COVID-19 strain with 100% kill rate in humanized mice. A surprisingly rapid death. In a Wuhan-esque study, Chinese scientists are experimenting with a mutant COVID-19 strain that is 100% lethal to humanized mice. What could possibly go wrong? I mean, this sounds great. This sounds like a great idea. Oh, yeah, put this in the good idea genes category. No question about it. The deadly virus known as GX underscore P2V attacked the brains of mice that were engineered to reflect genetic makeup similar to people. According to a study shared last week out of Beijing, this underscores a spillover risk into humans and provides a unique model for understanding the pathogenic mechanisms of SARS-CoV-2 related viruses. So, again, this is what we do. We make a virus in the lab. With the idea that, well, you know, if, if Frankenstein's monster ever gets out, we got to know how to defeat him. And then, whoa, lo and behold, there's Frankenstein's monster terrorizing the village. So now we make money on both ends. We make money by making the virus and we make money trying to make the treatment for the virus. This is why the gain of function gravy train uh, will never end. And this is why bureaucrats like Asanto Fauci, Anthony Fauci, the nation's leading infectious disease doctor, you always have to say that by law. And people at the NIH, the national, uh, all these other three-letter, four-letter, five-letter agencies did whatever they wanted. They, they just gave money to Wuhan. They didn't care because they know there's no consequences to their actions because the administrative state is out of control. This Chevron case today is not just about fishing boats. It's not just about herring. It, it's about everything related to the power of the bureaucracy and what these people do and what these people get away with. The deadly virus is a mutated version of GX 2017, a coronavirus cousin that was reportedly discovered in Malaysian pangolins in 2017, three years before the pandemic. This is like the cousin Eddie of, uh, of coronaviruses. Pangolins, also called scaly anteaters, are mammals found in warm areas of the planet. All the mice that were infected with the virus died within just eight days, which researchers noted was a surprisingly rapid death rate. It infected the lungs, bones, eyes, trachea, and brains of the dead mice, the last of which was severe enough to ultimately cause the death of the animals. In the days before their deaths, the mice had quickly lost weight. Well, I mean, there's, there's that. Exhibited a hunched posture and moved extremely sluggishly. Most eerily of all, their eyes turned completely white the day before they died. So that's fun. Not at all zombie-ish. 
Although terrifying, the study is the first of its kind to report a 100% mortality rate in mice infected by the COVID-19 related virus, far surpassing previously reported results from another study. <laughs> Although terrifying, the good news is it's got a 100% kill rate. How, how, how is that? How, how does the although terrifying work in the context of this? Although terrifying, it's really, really terrifying. Francois Bellou, an epidemiology expert at University College London's Genetics Institute, slammed the research as terrible and scientifically totally pointless. I can see nothing of vague interest that could be learned from force infecting a weird breed of humanized mice with a random virus. Conversely, I could see how much stuff might go wrong. The preprint does not specify the biosafety level and biosafety precautions used for the research. The absence of this information raises the concerning possibility that part or all of this research, like the research in Wuhan in 2016 to 2019 that our bureaucrats paid for and that caused COVID-19, recklessly was performed without the minimal biosafety containment and practices essential for research with potential pandemic pathogens. Rutgers University professor of chemistry and chemical biology Richard Ebright backed up Bellew's concerns in a single word, concur. Dr. Janati Jinsky, a retired professor of medicine at Stanford, wrote, this madness must be stopped before it's too late. I think it is too late. But understand, all of this comes down to one thing, and that is the fact that the bureaucrats never in their life thought they would, they would ever get in trouble for anything that they did. So when it came off to signing off on uh, risky uh, research, yeah, why not? What's going to happen to us? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing ever happens to them. That's part of the problem. The 2024 study does not appear to have any ties to China's Wuhan Institute of Virology, the WIV, which was the center of lab leak theories surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. They're not theories. U.S. intelligence agencies over the summer found no direct evidence that the lab leaked the coronavirus, although they did not rule out the possibility the virus came from a different one. The origin of COVID-19 is still unclear. Unclear to who? We all know exactly where this virus came from. We all know exactly where it started, and we all know exactly who did it. China. And we also know it was not because somebody ordered an undercooked bat burger. It was because China made this virus in a lab with our taxpayer dollars. And do you remember how um, back then, if you suggested that Fauci paid for this, you you were labeled like conspiracy nut kook du jour. You were, of all the conspiracy nuts in all the world, you were the biggest conspiracy nut. The idea that Fauci paid for this virus. I remember my friend um, Barb, Barb and Jim, wonderful people, sent me that first story, which was early on in the pandemic. I mean, I was still doing the show from my sunroom at the time in the old house. This is pre-home studio because I didn't, why would I need a home studio back then? I just made it up. You know, we all, everybody made it up back then as they went along. Anyway, um, they sent me that story about Fauci paying for gain-of-function research and paying for this pandemic. And I remember bringing it up on the air and I remember getting a tersely worded email from somebody saying something to the effect of, you know, you really shouldn't share these kind of conspiracy theories because you're going to sound like a kook. And our audience is really mainstream. And, you know, they don't really like this. I said, I don't know who you're talking about. I know my audience. My audience knows the truth is out there. My audience understands, quite frankly, that these bureaucrats lie to us. And sure enough, I was right. You were right. We were all right. I'll tell you one thing, though. If we don't learn the lesson, 
if we don't learn the lesson of COVID-19, and that lesson is that bureaucrats will do whatever bureaucrats want to do, and that they will use these opportunities absolutely to expand the powers of the bureaucracy. If, if, we, if we don't do that, we are going to have more problems than we can ever imagine in the future because they're using disease X at the World Economic Forum to talk about now how we ought to surrender United States sovereignty so that we can all have a worldview of science. In fact, you can't even debate this stuff anymore. John Kerry came out today and said that um, the truth of the matter is is that the, the, the science on climate is so clear we can't even have a debate on it anymore. Yes, a good old horse face speaking at the WEF. He said it all. Now, the reason why I want Chevron reined in is because I am telling you right now that um, if we don't, if we don't, we will have more bureaucrats who gain more power and will create more pandemics and the pharmaceutical industry will get richer. And then these bureaucrats will use that power to seize control over everything. Here's at the World Economic Forum. This is Apollo Hospital's vice chair says lockdowns helped during covid and are important going forward. Take a listen to this. But more than anything else, uh, I am a very proud Indian, and I think that the leadership, uh, the quick decisions, and the incisive decisions to do what we have to do at the right time, sometimes they're hard decisions, you face that, but I think to take the right decision, the hard decision, but to take a decision has been very important, and I think a population of 1.3 billion people, if we have been able to come out of this uh, relatively, you know, better than which could have been anticipated. And the fact that there was early intervention of vaccination, uh, there was a lockdown. It was hard, but it was a decision making which I think helped us. So I think that's important going forward. Yeah, well, you know what? I think the the reality of, of the situation, what we all know, is that Fauci... Asanto Fauci, Anthony Fauci should should go to jail. That's the reality. The consequences for him should be going to jail. That's what he told Laura Ingram last night. And he's exactly right about this. And everything we know about COVID and everything we know about the power of these bureaucrats and the fact that they are unaccountable and why Chevron needs to be overturned because these bureaucrats feel no fear of, of ever being held accountable can be summed up entirely by what Senator Rand Paul says about Fauci. They make antibodies. But Rand. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it, it wasn't Senator, proof of anything. It was all. Yeah, Senator, it, uh, they were lying. And the lying had real consequences for children, their mental health, their education, for business, for our faith, not being able to go to houses of worship. I mean, that's fundamental American freedoms. And I'll ask you again, what should the consequences be for Anthony Fauci? Jail. You know, I've sent two referrals to the Department of Justice. I think he lied to Congress, which is a felony. You know, uh, several folks from the Trump administration were accused of lying to Congress and carted off to jail with FBI agents all over their property, you know, yanking them out of their house early in the morning. But we have two tiers of justice here. It depends on whether you were a supporter of Donald Trump or you're a supporter of big government, you know, the centralized government. But Anthony Fauci did lie to Congress. We know that from his own words, not because I say lies, but his private email say he was lying. Virtually everything he said in private. Now, he's exactly right, by the way. He's exactly right. And on that point, here's Argentinian President Javier Mele, my favorite politician in the world right now, at the WEF, 
Do not surrender to the advance of the state. Long live freedom. I love this man. Do not surrender to the advance of the state. The state is not the solution. The state is the problem itself. You are the true protagonists of this story. And rest assured that as from today, Argentina is your staunch, unconditional ally. Thank you very much and long live freedom. Damn it. Long live freedom. Damn it. 855-839-1210 on Twitter at Rich Zioli coming right back. The Zioli Show on your schedule from Talk Radio 1210 WPHT in the free Odyssey app. So I had those John Kerry clips. John Kerry. Yes, I'll get to those. Um, We'll talk about Pennsylvania. We'll talk about door knocking with uh, Cliff Maloney. We're going to talk about the presidential transition project. We're going to check in with Zach Smith about the uh, Chevron decision. We got a big show still to come. And it's only 430. Look at that. Uh, and don't forget something, too. You know, as we discuss all these issues, we're uh, watching potential now uh, snow for Friday. It's freaking cold out. All right, so what's the over-under on us getting snow Friday, uh, Henry? What do you think? Well, you want me to set a line of how much we're getting? Yeah, what are we getting? Two inches, three inches? Uh, what are we getting? Nothing? Nada? <laughs> Is this I, the industrial, uh, French industrial complex again messing with us or I'll, what? I'll set the line at uh, one and a half. One and a half? I, I personally haven't looked into what the forecast is supposed to be, but that, that sounds just... Well, I have 6 enough. ABC on right now, and of course, all they're doing is showing snow. It's supposed to be 2 to 4 inches, I think. 2 to 4, two to four inches on right, Friday. Maybe then we have to set it at uh, 3.5? Right in the middle? 2.5? 3 would be in the... Yeah. Well, we don't want to push. <laughs> I mean, you could measure 3.5 inches, though. It's not like a football uh, score. Kind of right. Yeah, but who does the measuring and where? Certain places will get more than others because of wind and whatnot. I know wherever I am is going to get the most because I just have terrible luck. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what they're doing. They're, they're rigging the weather machine just to ruin and inconvenience you, Matt DeSantis. Yeah, and I thought it was to hurt Trump in Iowa, but it turns out it's to, it's to hurt you getting to work on Friday. Exactly. It's just to annoy me. See that? Well... I wish I was in Texas right now. It looks nice and warm in Eagle Pass. Wow. I mean, all these pictures of people crossing the border, they they all look pretty uh, pretty balmy. I mean, a couple of them have winter hats on, but there's no freaking, you know what I mean? <laughs> they don't, they're not wearing winter jackets down there. Yeah, it would be nice. It would be nice to be walking around in shorts and, uh, and a T-shirt. Then, then you get to New York City, and it's so cold. You don't have a jacket. I guess they hand those out to you. Like Four thirty Ch- bus terminal. Chicago's like in the negatives this week. Well, it's a perfect time for a fake hate crime, then, isn't it? Where's Juicy Smiley when you need him? <laughs> He's drawing up plans for his next attack. Yeah, he is. I mean, this is like, this is when the MAGA the MAGA racists strike. Usually, when it's this cold in Chicago, they prefer to go out looking for uh, for their victims when it's usually twenty below. So. <laughs> Now, you might be a psychopath. It's possible. And if you are a psychopath, and I have friends who are psychopaths, one in particular, no question about it. Researchers in Canada have analyzed the finger lengths of volunteers with clinically diagnosed psychiatric issues to determine whether uh, psychopathy, psychopathy, I guess, is biologically rooted. The team found that those whose index fingers are shorter than their ring finger are more likely to have a diagnosed psychiatric disorder. 
So if your index finger, which one is that now? That's the... It's your pointer finger. Your pointer finger. Okay. If it's shorter than your ring finger, you're a whack job. I got... Mine are even, so I'm in the clear. But I just heard Henry say, uh-oh, as he's sitting yeah. right next to me in this enclosed studio. I need my own studio. I didn't trust him to begin with, and now now we have tangible proof. Yeah, you might be in trouble. I don't know. Well, I, I definitely, my my ring finger is much longer than my index finger, so I've Same. got major issues. Oh, jeez. Yeah. The team found that those whose index fingers are shorter than their ring fingers are more likely to have a diagnosed psychiatric disorder. The team started out by noting that those who have a lower 2D-4D ratio, i.e. a shorter index finger and a longer ring finger, are already known to be more commonly associated with dark triad traits and aggressive behavior. Now, I actually say the dark triad is the government... Or somebody said the unholy triad, the government, big tech, and uh, corporate media. But in this case, dark triad traits include highly socially discouraged attitudes, namely Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy. <laughs> paper, uh, the paper also noted that people who scored high in the dark triad scale also scored high on mental toughness and sports performance. Well, that's definitely not me, but also on various types of negative psychosocial and psychological outcomes, including intolerance of uncertainty, anxiety, sensitivity, callous effect, whatever that means, and interpersonal manipulation. For the scientific study, the researchers recruited 80 volunteers, 44 with psychiatric issues, and 36 healthy individuals without any diagnosed mental conditions. An analysis of their hands confirmed that compared to healthy controls, individuals with a clinically diagnosed psychiatric issue were more likely to have a shorter index finger and a longer ring finger. Yeah, I know. The investigation uncovered that compared to the healthy controls, individuals with a clinically diagnosed psychiatric issue were more likely to have the shorter index finger. Um, dark triad traits. However, though, there's a caveat to this. The study's lead author, Sergey Brand, is warning people with shorter index fingers not to fret, saying it's very common. <laughs> so it's normal you may to be a not psychopath. be a psycho. You just may have a shorter index finger. Henry's definitely a psycho. I can just tell by sitting next to him. He's just sitting in here staring at his hands now. Yeah. That's, oh, yeah. that's weird. I'm if worried. Anyone's gonna, if anyone's going to walk in Odyssey one day and go postal, it's Henry. No, no question. And I mean Whoa. that with all due respect. Whoa. I'm, I'm, sincerely, I mean that with all due respect. It's oh, not a negative I, I, in any way, shape, or it doesn't, form. It doesn't help. You saying it with all due respect doesn't, doesn't help with, change what you just said. With, with all due respect, I don't mean... Certainly don't mean that in a negative way. <laughs> no, no, of course not. It's perfectly fine now because you said with all due respect. How could, how could anybody take it that way, right? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I agree with your assessment. Definitely, Henry. Um, so the dark triad is, is the issue. The dark triad traits. And the Machiavellianism... I like that term, Machiavellianism, which is basically you're able to, well, like, you know, the prince, Machiavelli, you're able to figure out how to use people to get what you want. And that's the trait. Now, let's see now. I wonder, see, Lee Pavorsky texted me a picture of his hand. But here's the question that I have. I think this is a business opportunity for him as a jeweler. Here's why. You go to size a woman up for a ring. And you notice that her index finger is shorter than her ring finger. You can run 
like hell. You know what I'm saying? Like you just run. This is a psycho. I'm, I don't. Before I before I, I pop the question here, so that's what that's what I would suggest. I would I would I would have it done that way, where you know you you you, you do it like a, which, oh we're going to do a ring fitting, but actually it's just to determine whether or not she's a psycho. Oh, that's a genius idea. Yeah. Plus, a, a larger ring finger, you need a larger diamond too, right? Because it'll look smaller that's true. comparatively. Another business opportunity yeah. here. A lower 2D40 ratio is also associated with prenatally higher testosterone and lower estrogen exposure during the first trimester of the fetal stage. So that means, for example, you have had higher testosterone concentrations, which may lead you to be part of this dark triad. So there we go. But it's not irrevocable, your fate. Got it? Good. He's still staring at his hands. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm, mull- I'm mulling this whole thing over. It's a lot of information at intake. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. But from now on, every time I meet somebody, I'm going to take a look at their hands. Be like, let me see your hands. <laughs> hmm? Hmm? That definitely makes you the psychopath then, doesn't it? Probably. Um, <laughs> the dark triad traits. I like it. All right, 855-839-1210. Road Warrior definitely has a longer index finger. (laughs) Road Warrior, send us a picture of your hands. uh, uh, Ring finger, no question about it. I'm sure he's still angry that I didn't give him credit for mentioning that uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson recused herself. Because (laughs) why does he deserve credit for that? I don't understand. Just because he mentioned it on Twitter, I have to give him credit for it? We didn't even yeah. do the story yet, but he right. broke I, it. I hadn't even done the topic yet. So just because he mentions it, I have to give him credit for it. I think that's how it works. With, yeah. with, what if I already knew this though? What if I knew it already? <laughs> but it doesn't. He he broke it within the like Zioli universe. He he, he didn't broke break it. it I knew it because I was following the case all day. Yeah, but he broke it within like the Zioli army. It's been in the show sheet for like the last. <laughs> but he know, broke half it. A day. He said it. I've been talking about this friggin' case for seven <laughs> months now. Yeah, but he broke it today. Yeah. Well, what can I tell you? Um, congr- thank you, Road Warrior. Congra- congratulations. You, you should be a Supreme Court justice for, for that. Another question that I've gotten on social media as we do our social media check-in, courtesy of our friends at Cherry Hovavo. There's a reason why Tom Cruise follow Matt to Sancta Traitorous is because he's a Scientologist. Matt, are you a Scientologist? I, Would you like to? No, I am not a Scientologist. You're not a Scientologist. No, you're late are on you your sure? church payments, man. Are, <laughs> No, I am 100% positive I'm not a Scientologist. Are you sure? I work in radio. They wouldn't even accept me. I don't, I don't earn enough money. Yeah. I one time, um, uh, the Church of Scientology, there was a woman who left the church, and she wrote a book about how terrible it was. And I, I had her on the show. This was back in Afternoon Drive in the first iteration. And then I got a nasty email from the public relations director at the Church of Scientology. And I offered that. I said, well, then come on the show and defend, you know, defend the Church of Scientology. They wouldn't. They would They refuse to do it. They don't like the press. They don't the media, nothing. They don't want to do anything. But when you go to Clearwater, because we used to, you know, when I used to go for the Phillies for spring training and I'm going to go down there for a weekend, hopefully and take Patrick down there one weekend. Um, that's the headquarters, you know, that's where their headquarters is at Clearwater, Florida. Heck of so, a headquarters. Yeah, I mean, look, there's worse places to be, I guess. So so when you go down, you don't go down there and you don't genuflect in front of the statue <laughs> of Tom Cruise? <laughs> no, I'm not a Scientologist. All right, I'm just checking, because we're, we're all trying to figure out why he's following you on Twitter. So, Although, if I get to go to Clearwater, Florida, uh, you know, maybe I'll consider a conversion. 
Have you ever read an L. Ron Hubbard book? <laughs> I've, I, no, I've not. All right. Well, that's the. Those are the tests, you know. <laughs> do I do I have to read one and then I get to go to Florida? How does this work? I have to look into it. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I, I can't. I can't answer that question for you because I am not of the of the chosen few of the Scientologists. <laughs> uh, let's see. Eight five five eight three nine twelve ten. I do want to play another clip from the uh, the web. This is John Kerry now, who was confronted about his private jet use. He was confronted over the fact that, of course, he, uh, unlike Javier Mele, who flew commercial to the WEF, John Kerry, of course, uh, flew on his private jet. So, Rebel News, which does a great job of, of exposing clips, Rebel News, the reporter Avi Yamini, uh, he, 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 he brought this up to, uh, to John Kerry at the Davos conference on Tuesday. Cut number seven. What's the carbon footprint of these events every single year that you come here? You think it's worth it? Peasants pay for your crimes? That's a stupid question. Is it, a, is it really? Is it, is, it, is it more stupid than you traveling here to tell us Please, I'm, sorry. We're done. We're done. We You're are done now. You don't grab me. You can't grab us. This is a free society, mate. We're this is. Done. We have freedom of the press. Why do you think you're more important? Your carbon footprint doesn't matter, but everybody else around the world suggested that. Nobody ever suggested that. Don't make up stupid questions. You, you being here suggests that. A stupid question. You being here every single year and doing this suggests that. And, and I have done a huge amount. Listen, now it's finished. Please. Why can't I ask him questions? Please. Who are you? Why are you trying to bully me out of us? No, so please. That, that doesn't, a lot of people say no to a lot of the policies and agendas he pushes. They don't get a choice. So why can't we ask him a question in a public space? Can you not touch me? Uh, you can't confront these people. They're the elites. They're better than you. They're good people and you aren't, okay? So you can't even have these conversations. And certainly don't ask them about their hypocrisy. Now, remember how uh, during Biden's speech about January 6th, the high holy day of the left, they compared that to World War II and World War I, which I thought was just an atrocious, atrocious analogy, obviously. Well, John Kerry now has compared climate change to fighting Hitler. Everything comes back to Hitler. There's actually, I think, a South Park about this, where everything eventually comes back to Hitler. But with the left in particular, they, oh, oh, always everything with them. But here's John Kerry. This is a challenge that we're facing right now. This is akin to fighting Adolf Hitler and defeating the Nazis in World War or two. Cut number six. I'm convinced that the only way we win this battle is by stepping up exponentially from where we are today and begin to treat this fight almost as if we we're in a war. I hate the war analogies because we get tired of them and they're probably overused, but unfortunately it's, uh, it's, it's apt. <laughs> In World War II, when we needed to gain control over the skies and of the ocean and learn how to penetrate Hitler's defenses in order to win the battle of freedom, it was mid-level techs who made a lot of decisions that actually helped us win the war. And uh, uh, Paul Kennedy at Yale has written a book about this called The Engineers of Victory, which if you want to read about real effort, it'll tell you about it. At the end of the war, we could turn out one B-24 bomber every hour on the hour in a reconstituted automobile factory because we were serious. 
Could we be doing that today for solar panels? Could we be doing that today for blades, for turbines? You bet we could. But the politics of the world haven't yet moved to understand that that is almost literally where we need to be. Why? Because, as David just said to you, trillions of dollars are needed. Somewhere between 2.5 to 3 trillion and 4.5 to 5 trillion dollars a year. Every year for the next, until we get to 2050, next 30 years. Actually, he's way off here. I mean, he's right. He's he's way off on everything he says. But the you know the, the Hitler analogy is just stupid. World War II analogy is just stupid. But this is how these people think. They they do. They believe climate change is worth worse than Nazis. They they, they really do. Uh, it's worse than everything. Remember, it's the greatest threat to America. There's no greater threat to America than climate change or to the world. But he's way off on the figure here because here's the president of Colombia. All right. A hundred billion. That's nothing. That's nothing. You want to talk about preserving life on the planet. You want to talk about saving the world from climate change. A hundred billion. That barely gets you in the door. That's like going to a wedding and giving somebody a hundo. That only gets you that. That doesn't even get you in the door these days. A hundred billion. Come on. Cut 19. I would like to see two things. One. Without doubt, to ha to, well, there is a democratic uh, danger in the world, and therefore we have to restore the democratic order in the world. This is a challenge, and currently uh, this is fragmented. We have to restore this order, freedom or liberty, egalité. The, and on all these French principles, have they don't have the headquarters in Paris, but in South Africa and Africa. And another issue or another point to mention: how we address climate change. The 100 billion from Paris uh, are no longer important. We need 30 times more funds for this. If we manage to establish some sort of policy and to reach an agreement to uh, offset debt for climate action, we could reach this figure. 30 times higher than what was pledged in Paris. And that can be generated with public resources from everywhere in the world. And this can be invested in a major Marshall Plan on climate action in the world so that we can preserve life on the planet. What's 100 billion times 30? Does anyone know? It's like 3 trillion. $3 trillion? Yes. They need, th so now it's $3 trillion. <laughs> to save the world from climate change, you three trillion dollars to buy to buy windmills and all the other things John Kerry mentioned. Three trillion dollars with a T, correct? Trillion, yes. Oh, good. Okay, great. Uh, and then the people that make all these things will make will reap the profits of that, but nobody sees that. Nobody sees through that or anything like that. I mean, I, I, Henry does. Because he's about to go postal. Are you still looking at your fingers, Henry? I can't. I can't see over there. Are you still? No, no. I've I've moved past that. You moved past that. You've yeah. you've you've accepted that you're a psycho. Yeah. No. I'm just cooking up Machiavellian schemes right now. Yeah. Just trying Embra to embrace it. it. That's yeah, what just, I'm doing at this I'm point. Just, just embrace I'm, it. Yeah. Just working on manipulating everybody I meet. Yeah, we, now he's got to manipulate DeSantis since he doesn't have the uh, the traits that we have, which I consider to be gifts, Machiavellian traits. <laughs> 
Uh, lawmakers just uh, spoke that we'll grab the audio of this. They just were at the White House a few moments ago. They they just had a meeting with Biden, of course, on the border. Uh, we'll grab the audio of that. There really was no update, but it was Speaker Mike Johnson just coming out and basically saying that um, this military supplemental is now there's a lot more. Um, and speaking of Ukraine and speaking of the masters of the universe, you know how we're always telling Israel what to do? There has to be a ceasefire and we want Israel to back down and we want Israel to do what, what, what they're told. When it comes to Ukraine, not so much, because, of course, Ukraine has the receipts. You're asking me a math question. Is this like if a train leaves Chicago at 5 o'clock and then another one? Did John Kerry say $5 trillion a year for 30 years? Yeah, I think at the end of that clip, he kind of... I don't know. He mumbled it and spoke very Marvel, Well, he mumbles everything. He's a horse face. So yeah, I'm pretty you're sure. Saying, so five trillion a year for thirty years is that the same as three hundred trillion or whatever three trillion? No, no that's way more. That, yeah, that would be like one hundred and fifty trillion. But I, I have the end if you want to listen to it one more time. No, I don't want to hear him again. But <laughs> okay. so one hundred fifty. He says one hundred fifty trillion. The other guy from Columbia says how much? Three trillion. Three trillion. All right. Well, I like the guy from Columbia better then, because he. <laughs> He's only saying we got to spend three trillion to save the world. Uh, it's got a discount, I guess. Wow, one hundred fifty trillion or three trillion? It's amazing. It's a big gap there. Just saying. Again, I'm no math guy. All right, but here is uh, Tony Blinken. We don't see a ceasefire in Ukraine. We're we, we're not we're not. We're, we're, Oh, let me take a break. We'll come back to that. We'll we'll, we'll deal with that. Um, we'll deal with a lot of things, including Pennsylvania. Can we win? Can Pennsylvania turn red? How can it happen? We have the game plan for you. Plus, uh, what's going on in the Supreme Court with Chevron? We'll talk about that as well. Big big stuff still to come. Do not go away. Thanks for listening to the Seoli Show podcast from Talk Radio 1210 WPHT and the Odyssey app. All right, so can we win back Pennsylvania? That's the question, of course. It is the must-win state. Can we win it back? Uh, the answer is yes, but we have to do some things that are very, very important. So we're going to have that conversation coming up next. And I got more on the WEF, more on the uh, the elites at Davos and how they're trying to run the world and control everything with us. Plus, as we get closer and closer to New Hampshire, um, what's going to happen? Is is it over for Ron DeSantis? You know, I've been I've been saying that. I've been I've been saying I think it's over for Ron DeSantis. Um, and it's no disrespect. I like the guy. I do. I like him a lot. I think I think he's one of the best governors, and I think he, he's got a great shot for 2028, but not for 2024. He just does not, and that is just the reality. So um, is it, in fact, over for him? And maybe he shouldn't even bother. Maybe he should just drop out prior to New Hampshire. What is the point of going down swinging? I don't really know. We'll have that conversation as well. And a major case before the United States Supreme Court, you've heard it as referred to as the fish case, but... There's so much more regarding Chevron than just fish. And then a little bit later in the show, we'll also answer a fundamental question. How can we rein in the administrative state, the unaccounted, unelectable, uh, the unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats who run everything? And if we get a Republican president back in the White House, which I think we will, what do they need to do to crush the administrative state? The answers to all of this lie straight ahead. 30 minutes of nonstop talk. Don't go away. Rich Zioli, weekday afternoons, 3 to 7, Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, and on the free Odyssey app. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia, from the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. The revolution will be broadcast. This is the next generation of talk. Now, this is the drive at five.
non-stop talk with Rich Zioli. Zioli. Can we win back Pennsylvania? It is crucial to 2024. Can we win it? Can we do it? It has to be. It has to happen. If we're going to put a Republican back in the White House, it must occur. Welcome back to the show. Glad you're here. 855-839-1210 on Twitter at Rich Zioli. I'm very, very happy to welcome to the show Cliff Maloney Jr. Cliff is a uh, very interesting guy with an incredible background. He's known as the door-knocking guru and political commentator, and um, he's knocked on over 6 million doors. Uh, Cliff, hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me in Philadelphia. I appreciate it. Rich, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, absolutely. So Citizens Alliance and uh, the Pennsylvania Chase effort that you guys are doing right now, the goal in Pennsylvania is to knock on 500,000 doors to chase Republican ballots within key target districts. So so first of all, let's understand the the concept of of door knocking and why it matters. All right. So um, what's the difference between actually knocking on somebody's door versus making a phone call or sending them a piece of mail? Right. So, I mean, after the 2020, you know, election and all these laws changed in PA, you know, you've got 50 days now uh, of potential mail-in ballots going in. Now, so, so 50 days out, they send them out. If you've, you know, asked to get a mail-in ballot, that's what you got to do. And unfortunately, Republicans, you know, we have pushed everybody to vote on one day, which is election day. And I understand the fears there, right? You know, you want your vote to count. But what's happening is Democrats right now are spending 49 days you know, attempting to get folks to vote, and they're running up the score. So the reason that, that 500,000 doors is what we're aiming to do is because we are trying to beat them, at least become competitive with them at this mail-in game. You look at the numbers, 20% is what Republicans typically average when you look at the mail-in ballots alone, 20 to 80. And so why the doors are so important, Rich, is we are trying to chase those ballots for 50 days in Pennsylvania, and if we can get it from 20% just to 33, right? I'm not saying we have to beat them at the actual number, but just getting it from 20% Republican mail-in ballots to 33%, Pennsylvania becomes very, very competitive. I agree with you. But first of all, let's understand a couple things, and this is a couple questions I have, Cliff. Why do we have to work so hard? Again, I'm just I'm, these are just kind of questions. I don't I'm not trying to set an agenda here. But why do we have to work so hard to convince Republicans to to do this in the first place? What is the reluctance of Republican voters to vote by mail, to get them to turn those ballots in, to not just rely on them showing up on Election Day? Well, I think for a lot of years, you know, people worry about election integrity, right? There's a lot of fear about Will your vote be counted? And I think that the at least the the understood or the the agreed upon thing amongst most conservatives is if you vote on Election Day, you're more likely that your vote will count. But my my counter argument to that is, look, we've got to compete with them under the current rules. And my other counter argument to that is if you really think that they're going to change your vote, why wouldn't they change your vote on Election Day, too? So, you know, I, I used to be that guy that was all in on Election Day. You know, I'm from Delaware County. You know, I'm, I'm, we, we went full blue, right? And it's like, you know, all right, I'm voting on Election Day to make sure it counts. I'm not thinking that anymore, right? You've got to be out there beating them at their own game. And I think it was so easy for the National Party and really just the, the, the establishment to, to kind of avoid this. 
And Rich, I'll tell you, when you're knocking these doors, it stinks, right? It's hard work. It's grueling. But the left pushes through this. And that's why we're doing this, man. It's time for the right to finally say, look, we have to match them at their tactics and we got to beat them at their own game. Yeah, I like the fact that you're a Delco guy, by the way. That's part of the reason why I like you, Cliff Maloney. I really do. And it's important because uh, we've seen with our own eyes how important these collar counties are. And we know that that's exactly what's going to happen. So Cliff Maloney is the founder of the Pennsylvania Chase Project right now. And it's great to have him with me right now here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. Pennsylvania Chase, an effort run by citizens of... Citizens Alliance, a simple but difficult task, knock on 500,000 doors to chase Republican ballots within key target districts. Listen, I'm with you. I mean, even on this past election day, I voted in person and I got there at 7.55, I think, and the polls closed at 8. Um, there was traffic on the way home. And that's just the thing. I mean, Democrats are masterful at getting people to the polls when there's so many options now between drop boxes, early in-person voting. And, of course, vote by mail. And I just don't want to ever give them an upper hand. Would we all love to go back to paper ballots? Would we all like to pull a, you know, Javier Melee and go back to paper ballots in person day off? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Would I also love to be able to eat pizza every day and not get fat? You bet. But I have to live in the real world, not the world I want to live in. <laughs> I'll meet you, Lorenzo. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, 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 the unfortunate, the unfortunate situation is if you don't play by their rules, we're never going to go back to paper ballots. I'm with you. Of course, we want to get to a point where we've got, you know, absolutely just election day, all paper ballots, all hand count, yada, yada, yada. But the, the pathway to do that, if you said to me, what's a real plan to do that in Pennsylvania? The plan is not hey, we're going to go in and we're going to monitor the polls in Philadelphia and Allegheny County. No, the plan is, if you want a real plan, because I've asked this to everybody who says, oh, it's all, you know, you can't, you can't, they're going to, the real plan is you take back the state house, you force the state house and the state Senate to pass the election reforms that get us to where we need to be, and you pressure the hell out of the governor. Now, I'm not saying that's a plan that's going to happen, but that's the only real plan there is. And the way you can do that is you don't have to be in these blue counties. Go out in the central PA and some of there are a lot of districts that we can flip. And that's what we're aiming to do. The chase is not just about Trump and McCormick. The chase is about going out there to make PA competitive, but also focusing on target districts in the general election that we can flip. You take back the house. We've got the Senate. We're going to hold that. And then all of a sudden, this is the hard part, Republicans have to have a spine. And being from Delco and a lot of weak Republicans, so I'll be the one to say this, they would have to step up and actually lead. They didn't during the 2020 election. We all know that. They were involved with a lot of these reforms. They fell. They caved. So that's going to be the path. Take the House. Take the Senate. you got to have courage, and you got to force Shapiro but you got to play the mailing ballot game now if you're ever going to get back to where we want to be. Yeah, Cliff, you're exactly right. And and how can we help? That's the question, right? As we're listening to everything you're saying, we agree. How can we help you? PAChase.com. PAChase.com. You can go there. There's a little bit more about what we're doing. We need folks to step up and sponsor a Liberty ballot chaser. We need these folks. We've got Tons of individuals we're trying to bring in for those final 50 days. And the last place I want to be is where we've got people ready to go. They want to participate. 
and we don't have the funds to do it. So I hate the fundraising part. It's the worst part of this. But we're looking to raise about $2 million to pull this off. I don't care if somebody's chipping in 5 or 10 bucks. PHHase.com, we need as many people as we can. This is actually, I think Pennsylvania is going to be what determines the White House. And, I mean, we got a lot of work to do, but it's simple and it ain't easy. But uh, I think we're going to pull it off. 500,000 doors getting us from 20% to 33%. By the way, I'm breaking the biggest rule. You're never supposed to give your numbers and be specific especially in the political strategy world, right? Because then what happens if we don't hit it? I'll be embarrassed. I'd rather be bold and tell the people the truth. We must get to 33% when it comes to mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania to be competitive, to take back the U.S. Senate, to win the White House, and obviously take back, like I said, the PA State House. Remember that number and hold me accountable to that. 33%, go to phace.com. Cliff, I'd love for you to come back on the show a lot uh, this year. And I also think people are listening and saying, okay, we'll help you financially, but you need door knockers. I mean, if you're going to knock on 500,000 doors in Pennsylvania, Cliff Maloney, which I know you can do because you've knocked on 2 million of them. And, and, and how old are you exactly? I am 32. You're 32 years old, and you have knocked on, on, on doors and helped people like Senator Rand Paul, Tom Massey. You, you, you've done a lot right, it, right here in Pennsylvania. I mean, you're, 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 you, you can do this, and, and I know you can, and I know you will. Um, you were a math teacher. You, you became a grassroots organizer, so you're a numbers guy, so you're looking at the numbers. But if you're going to knock on 500,000 doors, I imagine you need people to help you with that effort as well. So can people physically give themselves to you? To, that's a bad way of putting it, but can they physically you know, help you knock on doors, Cliff Maloney? Absolutely. So, you know, right now we're trying to get all the funds together, but at the same time we are recruiting individuals. You know, and look, there's going to be a volunteer component to this as well. Yes, we're paying. And by the way, people, people ask me, oh, you know, are you very loud about pay? Yes, the left paid 250 people full time to chase ballots just in PA in 2023 for an off-year election, right? So how many people do you think they're going to pay in 2024 when we've got so much on the line? So, yes, we are paying these folks. These are young activists. They're ideologically aligned Republicans who want to actually win. But I'm going to need all hands on deck. And one of the cool things we're going to be revealing here in February is we're going to have an app that's going to be open to pretty much any volunteer across the state. And we're going to launch that in February. We've got a bill. We're actually uh, partnering with Turning Point. Uh, It's an app that Charlie Kirk and his team has built with some feedback from a lot of great folks. And so, I'm uh, Rich, I'll come back on every, every day of the week to encourage folks to download that app once we launch it in February. We're going to need all hands on deck to get to those ballots, chase them in, and get to that 33% for Republicans. Well, here's my commitment to you, Cliff. As soon as the app launches in February, you come on the show either that day or the next day uh, so we can talk about it and uh, get get some awareness. I think what you're doing is outstanding. I'm proud of you. I want to help. I want to do my part. We want to do our part. We, we I agree with you. Absolutely. The road to the White House goes through Pennsylvania. It has to. We have to win this. It's not even a question. I believe whoever wins Pennsylvania will be the next president of the United States of America. No question about it. So P.A. Chase. P.A. Chase is the website please go there today right now and help out and uh cliff maloney jr thank you for all you're doing buddy we'll have you back on as soon as the app launches in february that's my commitment to you appreciate you guys being patriots we'll talk soon all right it's the five o'clock happy hour 
on the Rich Seoli Show. Brought to you by the Oceanfront Grand Hotel of Cape May, New Jersey. A premier full-service resort and conference center. GrandHotelCapeMay.com Alright, some other things. And look, and the reason why this is so important, and I, I can't stress this enough to you, and I, I do think Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee, and I, I think he can win. I, I do think he can win. There's no question about it. I absolutely believe Trump is going to be the next president of the United States of America because I think he's going to be the nominee, and so I think he's going to win. But it's important to understand something, and, 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 and what they're doing right now, for example, you know, Nikki Haley in Iowa, New Hampshire, this effort by the establishment to stop Trump is not going to go away. It's not going to stop. I, I promise you that it will not. And I, what my hope is, because I really do, I mean this sincerely from the bottom of my heart, DeSantis, great guy, not Matt DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, great guy. Ron, Matt DeSantis is all kinds of issues with him, but that's, <laughs> but Governor DeSantis is a great guy, and this is his moment, I think, to get on board what is inevitable, what is obvious, and do this. National Review, of all places, wrote a piece, there is no distance left for Ron DeSantis. Now, I understand there are going to be forces at National Review who are going to want Nikki Haley. And that's and that's unfortunate because National Review, as you remember, was the was the publication that in 2016 came out with their never Trump issue. Now, since that time, a lot of those conservatives have become huge fans of Trump. And, you know, I, 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 that, that was then. This is now. But the the question of where do you go? You know, in this piece that was written in National Review by Jeffrey Blar, who Jeffrey Blar was a, was a DeSantis supporter, you know, he said DeSantis had my vote and never seriously threatened to lose it. I didn't even mind when he said or did cringeworthy things on the campaign trail. His answers on Social Security in particular were gag worthy to any honest man, certainly not when the other primary options um, are Nikki Haley, no thanks ever, and Donald Trump. Having laid my cards out on the table like this, however, it's time to turn the tarot card over and give the DeSantis campaign its reading the death card. There is no other way to put it. It's over for the DeSantis presidential campaign after going all in on Iowa and getting thumped by 30 points. This is a DeSantis supporter writing this and a guy who says never Nikki Haley. No thanks, never. So understand this point. This is why I'd like to give you different perspectives of things because when I, I I get often accused of, you know, you, you know Trump and you guys and so what, whatever you say, we got to take it with a grain of salt. You don't because I've always called balls and strikes with this stuff and I always have and I always will. But here's a DeSantis supporter who's writing this for National Review and also a guy who says, unlike maybe other people at National Review, no thanks never to Nikki Haley. All right. He said... <clears throat> There's no other way to put it. Yesterday, after narrowly edging out Haley for a distant second place, DeSantis put on a brave face in his concession speech and said that, in spite of all that they threw at us, everyone against us, we've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. I guess you can't go out and deliver a speech saying, you know, we staked it all in winning and we lost it all hard. So I won't hold it against the campaign for remaining quiet for a decent interval of mourning. But given the catastrophic failure of its primary strategy and well-known money problems, it's hard to see that a DeSantis campaign makes it to New Hampshire, much less South Carolina or beyond, unless as a purely rhetorical exercise. 
There is another article to be written about how Haley's own chances against Donald Trump are entirely illusionary. It is impossible not to see her hitting a wall in South Carolina for the exact inverse of the reasons why she potentially challenges Trump in New Hampshire. But but by the arcane internal logic of campaigns, her ticket out of Iowa is punched in a much clearer way with a roughly equivalent performance to DeSantis in a state she had invested little time or money prior to a few weeks ago. In other words, translation is this. Um, she's going to win New Hampshire. A big reason why is because the Democrats are helping her. The establishment's helping her. But then it ends after that. And it's over. But I disagree with him. She will not get out of the race. She will stay until the convention because the establishment is going to say something could happen to Trump. Something regarding the courts, something regarding a ban of him being on the ballot, something. And we need you in there up until the convention. And as long as the establishment's writing the checks, it doesn't matter. I told you, if the checks cash, everybody's good. If the consultants are getting paid, they will tell their boss to stay in the race. It's how this works, how it works. So now here's the question for Ron DeSantis, and this is as a DeSantis supporter writes it for National Review. There's nothing more to add. Despite how glum the failure of the DeSantis campaign and this entire farce of a primary season makes me because I deliver coroner's reports better than I do eulogies. When presidential candidates deliver concession speeches, and remember, almost all seekers of a presidential nomination are necessarily losing ones, they typically refer to there no longer being a path forward. It's a graceful way to bow to the inevitable loss. There is no plausible path forward remaining for Ron DeSantis, who I'm convinced would have made the best Republican president of the United States during the 2024 cycle. There is no distance left to run. He's exactly right. And this is where I add to that point by saying that I think DeSantis is incredibly talented. I think he's learned a lot in this cycle. I think he has a lot to offer. I think he's got to work on his personality. I think he's got to lose the boots. I think there's a couple of things he needs to change, but all that stuff can be fixed. Personality can't be fixed, but in terms of your appeal to people and when you're speaking and debating, that stuff can. The guy that he hired to be his debate coach is a loser, in my opinion. It was not me, obviously, but the guy's a loser. I know who he is, and I, I think he's a joke. And every candidate that he's ever worked with is lost. Trump did not use him. (laughs) obviously, and Trump won. But the establishment keeps using this guy, and I don't quite get it because he's not good, but he was, a, I guess, a college-winning debate coach, and then he turned to politicians. And Anyway, I'm out of that game right now. I'm doing this. I love doing this, and I have... You know, Trump does not need a debate coach at this point. He he needed one back then. He doesn't need one now. DeSantis does in the future, no question about it. And should not be this loser. But the point is this. If he wants to ever be the Republican nominee, he has to get out now. Because if he goes to New Hampshire and loses to Nikki Haley, that is what is going to be the conversation. Forget about Trump. I mean, for a second now, leave Trump supporters out of this. Because I know there's a lot of Trump supporters who are hearing what I'm saying right now and saying, you know what? Maybe he can win me back. If he gets out and backs Trump now and helps defeat Nikki Haley, maybe he can win me back. All right. Let's leave that aside for a moment. When you start to run for president in 2026, because that's when the next presidential cycle is going to begin. I know it's hard to believe, but we are we, we are dealing with either one of these two men 
being term limited, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump, it's they're term limited. So the 2026 cycle is going to begin again. Even if Trump decides he's not leaving the White House, like the left tells us, or even if he decides he's, he's ignoring the 22nd Amendment, like the left tells us, both of either one of these two will be ineligible for a second term. And one of them will be leaving the White House, whoever is the president. My hope is that it's Trump and not Biden, obviously. They will be leaving the White House in January of 2029. So the question is, if you want to be the nominee in 2028, when you start going to Iowa and New Hampshire in 2026, can you believe that? Two years from now, we're going to be talking about Iowa and New Hampshire all over again, but we will. Uh, Not for the election, not for the caucus or the primary, but just the fact they're going to be going there. They're going to be going there in two years, going there to campaign and go to the diners and do all those things. If you get crushed by Nikki Haley in New Hampshire, that's all everybody's going to talk about. That's it. That's what they're going to talk about. Forget forget Trump supporters who have a bad memory of the fact that you went against the you know their guy. What everybody will bring up is the fact that you came in third place in New Hampshire and you got crushed by Nikki Haley. And that is no way to launch a presidential campaign. That is no way to launch a comeback. That is no way to convince the first in the nation primary state that this time around you can do it. As opposed to you get out now, you back Trump, you win the hearts and minds of Trump supporters again who all like you. I mean, DeSantis, that's the thing. They will come back. You know what I mean? If, if DeSantis brings his people to Trump and they defeat Nikki Haley, then Trump voters will come back to Ron DeSantis and all the negativity that's on social media and everything else will go away. It'll all go away because he will play a pivotal role in helping to defeat Nikki Haley. But if he doesn't do that, he's going to get trounced in New Hampshire. And it doesn't matter if he goes to South Carolina and beats her in South Carolina. He's still going to lose to Trump in South Carolina. So what do you gain here? Nothing. You gain nothing. All you do is, 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 is ruin your reputation, ruin your potential future prospects for 2028, and you just further tick off Trump supporters. So what is the point of this? Get out now. Get out ahead of New Hampshire. Don't wait to get trounced in New Hampshire. Right now, the polling, and I don't know if they've updated the Real Clear Politics average with new polls that have come out since Iowa, but the latest polls that that are there, which were done probably during Iowa at least, show him getting absolutely trounced in New Hampshire. There is no pathway here. So get out. Get out and save your political future because before you know it, we're going to be talking about 2028. Before you know it, we are going to be talking about 2028. The latest New Hampshire Republican presidential primary, Boston Globe Suffolk poll, has Trump at 50, Haley at 34, and DeSantis at 5. Along with Christie and Ramaswamy, who are not even in the race. Now, do you think, what's the story you tell in 2026 when you go back to New Hampshire? The story you tell in 2026, if you get single digits in the New Hampshire primary, the story you tell is nothing. You don't have a story to tell because you will be remembered as the guy who got so trounced in New Hampshire that he didn't even break potentially double digits. I mean, that's how bad it's looking for him right now in New Hampshire. That's how bad it's looking. Now, look, there's another poll comes out for New Hampshire, which shows him a little bit better at like 7%. But 
Do you really want to go in there and risk all that, knowing that you're a young guy with a beautiful wife and beautiful kids and you've got your whole life ahead of you and you can you know you know Trump's gonna be the nominee. You know he is. So just do what you have to do now for your own political future. Don't go don't do a suicide mission here, kamikaze mission, because you have idiot consultants around you who are afraid of losing their paycheck. And, you know, that's what I really fear is happening here. I really do. Having been in that in that world, I know how these these consultants think. And I'm telling you, I think what the problem is very often is they sit around with the with the the primary, as the person's called, you know, the candidate. And they convince that person there's a pathway and you can show all kinds of different things to make anybody believe anything. And they tell that person there's a pathway. Because they're afraid of losing their paycheck. Because what are they going to do? A lot of these people, it's too late for them to join Trump's team. They might then go run a governor's race somewhere, a U.S. Senate race. But we're getting very late on that stuff, too. I mean, it's 2024. It's January of 2024. A lot of the good candidates already, they they, they beefed up their teams already. So now you're going to go run a congressional race. You're going to go from running a presidential campaign or being in the inner echelons of that to running a congressional campaign in, you know, Arizona or something like that. And that's that's fine. That's all well and good. And you should go do that. But that's the problem is that these consultants sit around with the candidate and they say, stay in. You can do this. Here's here's what happens. Here's the scenario. And most of it's driven by their own personal anxiety about having to find another job. And some of these people are the absolute worst. I'm telling you right now, some of the worst people I've ever dealt with in my life are political consultants, professional political political operatives. They are the worst. These are these are people who every single candidate that they wind up going with, it's a gravy train for them. It's not out of some sort of philosophical principle. Most of the time, it is about making money. It's about well, look, everybody's got to make money, and I don't begrudge anybody for that. I don't. But when I begrudge people is when they tell the candidate there's a way to win when they know and and everybody knows there is no way to win. And you see these people because they circle people. It's like the very same people. And this guy who is the debate coach for Ron DeSantis was the debate coach for Michelle Bachman in 2012 who convinced her that she had a chance to become president of the United States of America. And her strong showing in Iowa that she should stay in the race and keep going. These people are bottom feeders. They're bottom feeders. And what needs to happen is that the people that are close to DeSantis who care about his political future need to tell him, get out of this race before Tuesday. Because if you go down on Tuesday, if you go down on Tuesday in the, in the spectacular fashion that it's looking like you're going to go down, and, and maybe it's because, yes, Democrats are helping Nikki Haley, and yes, maybe it's because uh, of all these externalities, whatever, all people are going to remember is you're the guy that came in single digits in New Hampshire, and you don't want that to be how people remember you, bottom line. That is the big story of the day today, brought to you by our buddy, Dr. Mike Venaria, venariadental.com. Go see him for the absolute best smile. You deserve a beautiful smile, and I'd love for you to have that wonderful, beautiful smile. 855-839-1210 on Twitter, at Rich Zioli. Uh, I'm sorry, Matt, what was the text you just sent me? Oh, just that um, obviously Ramaswamy and Chris Christie have dropped out, but Ron was actually projected to lose to both of them in New Hampshire. And the most recent poll, which is from Boston Globe, it was conducted yesterday, has yeah. run at 5%. 
And Vivek's people go to Trump. Christie's people go to Haley. He doesn't break 10%, potentially. No, I mean, even with those two gone, he's still only pulling at 5%. He actually, uh, he hasn't moved at all. So so that poll was done with them out of the race? Yes. Yeah, that's from yesterday. Oof. There, I, there's no point in him staying in. In fact, if he stays in, I think it, it probably hurts Trump because his supporters, as, as you've said before, likely go towards Trump and not to Haley. So if he gets out of the race, Trump wins. I, he kind of looks like a hero. Right. He looks like the guy. He He's the, the Doug Burgum of New Hampshire. He can say he delivered for Trump the way <laughs> Doug Burgum did in Iowa. <laughs> With more credibility, I think. But actually mean it. Yeah. <laughs> actually help. Yeah. I, no, I, yeah. Oh, no, no, sorry, no, I was, was going to say that 5% actually could make a difference because there are some other polls that I don't know how reputable they are. Do suggest that Nikki is pretty close to even with Trump, but that 5%, again, we assume that DeSantis supporters will go towards Trump. Uh, that could make the difference in the race. Yeah, 100%. 100%. And then at that point, then he gets to be on the stage with Trump in New Hampshire and take credit for Trump winning and 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 give the nomination, the nominating speech at the Republican National Convention. Oh, for sure. so right. And that's and that I think for him is the pathway here. You you drop out before Tuesday. You back Trump. You're on the stage with him Tuesday night when he beats Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. And then you give the nominating speech at the Republican National Convention, setting the stage for you to be the front runner in 2028. Now, that's a billion years away politically. But for right now, that's a good way to play. That is a good way to play this game. The other way is a way that you will be remembered as the guy who got slaughtered in the first of the nation primary state in single digits and did nothing to help Trump, who wins regardless in that scenario. And then you bring nothing to the table going forward because this is the crucial test and you have nothing to offer after this. Oof. Sorry, you want to say add to that? Uh, I was just going to say, and you kind of uh, win back the, the Trump crowd, because they've soured on Ron DeSantis. I see the tweets all the time. Uh, he's not popular amongst the, the Trump crew, but if he were to drop out and assist Trump and once and for all eliminate all competition, because if Haley loses New Hampshire, it's over. There's no doubt about it. Um, that's basically the only state she has any chance of, of winning and um, capturing momentum with. He does, He looks like a hero. Yeah, it's all there. It's all there for him. This is very, very simple. I hope somebody in his orbit is listening to the show because this is very valuable political advice that I'm giving for free. And I don't like doing that. I think we have a guest coming up, right? Yeah, we do. And I'm way late. All right. So we'll come right back. 855-839-1210 on Twitter at Rich Zioli and uh, coming right back. The Zioli Show on your schedule from Talk Radio 1210 WPHT in the free Odyssey app. All right, the question, of course, is how do we crush the administrative state? Welcome back to the show. Glad you're here. 855-839-1210 on Twitter, at Rich Zioli. Uh, Paul Dans joins me right now. He is the director of the 2025 Presidential Transition Project at the Heritage Foundation. He served in the Trump administration as chief of staff at the U.S. Office of Personnel Management. Hey, Paul, thanks for joining me here in Philadelphia. I appreciate it. Hey, Rich. It's my pleasure. 
I'm so excited about this idea of 2025 and this project that you guys have put together and, and the potential right now to really crush the administrative state, the deep state, the federal Leviathan, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I also love the fact that the media keeps saying it's going to mean an imperial presidency when if you've actually read it, you understand it's the exact opposite of that. But um, let's start there. Let's start with what the goal here really is. Yeah, sure. I mean, so much of what the left does is projection of who they actually are. They, you know, they're always saying um, we're doing something, which is precisely what they're that they're at work doing. Um, Project 2025 is nothing short of of really planning to retake our government, to bring it back to a government of the people, by the people and for the people. It's conservatives standing up and getting organized to take power day one and support the next conservative president to, to ro- really roll out uh, the agenda that the American people vote for in November. And it's, you know, it's critical that we as conservatives realize that the federal government was never supposed to be this way, but over the last 100 years with the progressive era and all these, you know, New Deal um Reforms. Well, they're not. They weren't really reforms. They were critical changes in the architecture of the government. But uh, we now have a permanent government in D.C., uh, and and that's the problem. There is a class of folks here who are no longer accountable to to the electorate. Um, they have complete job security, and they really feel that their intended that their role is to divine policy and and set it forth. So it's it's cutting out the voter. And what we're doing with Project Twenty Twenty Five is asking you, the listener, the people who have always thought that there was a problem with Washington, we're now telling you you're gonna be the solution. You have to think about coming to Washington and serving. And we want to tell you how this is going to work and and give you the training, and then you're going to be the one making the change. Yeah, you know, it's great. Uh, a lot of the, the uh, issue with the bureaucrats is they know they can outlast the conservative president or the conservative uh, cabinet secretary or administrator. So they laugh, you know, when the uh, administrator of the EPA walks in and says, we're going to make this uh, organization more friendly. We're going to make the EPA business-friendly and scale-back regulations the bureaucrats laugh because they've been there longer and they'll be there longer they are unaccountable they're unelected and they they really do run the show and that is why we are in the situation that we're in today i'm glad you brought up fdr because i think people forget that sometimes that he really is the impetus of this uh this idea that the executive would have so much power over so many different areas of government and there's been other things around too you know laws regarding civil service chevron for example which is before the supreme court today but When you think about people that work for the president of the United States of America, they're in the executive branch of the government, and Article 2 vests all of that power into one person, the president. All the other powers flow through the presidency. They don't work for the United States. They technically are paid by the United States, but they work for the president. Yet they have the ability in the executive branch of government to undermine the agenda of the president of the United States, who technically is their boss. And that that, that's baffling to people. And and when you say that to people, they they can't even understand how that's possible. Correct. The um, you know. If they don't report to the president, they don't report to anyone. They, and that's essentially what we have now. 
Um, and as you say, the, the Constitution, and we have to credit Philadelphia and South Jersey, that is one of the birthplaces of freedom in America. Your, your um, forebearers 200 years ago set down a brilliant design for government, and it was vested in one person, the president. They didn't make a council of people. Mm-hmm. They didn't make inferior offices. But it was very clear that the power was going to be, you know, vested in the person. But the corollary would be that that person would be accountable to the people, and we'd have elections for that very purpose. So the, what we have now in Washington, you know, civil servants over time may have come in with an ethos of of serving in the public and being um, non-political arbiters. But that was thrown out the window when Obama came in. And over time, um, you look at the electorate here in the in D.C., Maryland, Virginia, and it in this this uh, kind of metropolitan area of D.C., you look at voting tracts on the order of 90, 95 percent Democrat Party. And, you know, the, the actual contributions of many of the federal civil servants also track that, where, the, where their political contributions are 90 percent of the Democrat Party. So when a president walks into office, it's, it's basically, um, you know, he, and one day it will be a she, I imagine, but um, he is, is looking at a federal government of 2.2 million workers, and typically the president's appointed three or 4,000 people. So that's one person for every 500 who are who are career bureaucrats, and that's an amazing metric to kind of overcome. So, when when you're already trying to manage a group of people that you can't hire, you you didn't hire, you can't really fire, and they are many times politically opposite of yours. It's a it's a massive challenge, and we have to we have to know the tricks of the trade and have a, have a game plan. But um, you know, it's going to require people on our side coming in and volunteering. And that's what we're doing at Project 2025. I hope the listener out there is saying, you know, I've always wanted to do this, or I know somebody, my daughter, um, my my coworker. These are people who who need to go to Washington, and they should go to project2025.org and sign up and take our classes and learn what what we're about. I love that idea. I really do, Paul. And the the other part of this, too, and you you touched on this, and I think it's really important to um, think about for a moment. When you have the president accountable to the people, which is true, he's also accountable to Congress uh, vis-a-vis the impeachment clause. So if you have a a situation where the president's a lame duck or something, I mean, you know, and abuses his power, the Congress is there to be able to deal with that. But when you're dealing with people who can't be fired, when you're dealing with somebody who has civil service protection or something like that, and there's no consequences to the actions that their agency takes or they decide to take uh, action, it very much reminds me of Barack Obama saying very famously, I have a pen and I have a phone. And then dispatching all of the bureaucrats within his administration to go go forth and promulgate regulations, go forward and, and make laws vis-a-vis rules. That has to stop. That I mean, that needs to end. And obviously, if the Supreme Court overturns or, or rewrites Chevron, that'll go a long way towards that. But this idea that if, well, if we can't get a law through Congress, we can we can promulgate a rule, which is basically a law. I mean, if Congress doesn't like it, they have to vote. They have to pass a law to overturn it. And a lot of these rules have... Uh, uh, they come with fines. They come with jail time. 
the case right now regarding whether or not these herring boat fishermen have to pay, you know, 750 bucks a day to have a monitor on board is an example of that. But uh, it's it's the EPA going after methane. It's it's whatever the administrative state wants. And they figured it out. We can we can bypass Congress. We can get around them with our pen, with our phone. And that is what we are dealing with right now. Correct. And, you know, it's hard to, to really trace out the blame for this. And it's it's shared by both, you know, Republican um, presidents who, who basically allowed this to fester, but also Congress for unduly delegating their job to the administrative state. You know, it, they need to really do a lot more work yes. on the legislative front. And, you know, they're they're turning in three day weeks and, and you know, it's just not that work ethic and the whole organization of it. But, you know, the the point with the unaccountability, it was never intended to be that way. When the federal service, civil service was stood up, um, it came in reaction to, uh, you know, the, the boss tweet and the scandals of the teapot dome and the like, and um, the spoil system. So the liberals always point to that and, and say, oh, this is the reason why we have this professionalized civil service. But only 10% of the jobs were supposed to be consecrated to those career protections. Over time, it's now 99.8% of the jobs. So, um, you know, the folks uh, here in Washington, they they rate themselves as um, 99.5% fully successful or better on their performance. There's no way to really judge these people that are not performing. And you look at just like an Elon Musk with Twitter, he went in and fired about 80% of that organization, and Twitter is humming along. You know, in any enterprise, you're going to find a lot of dead weight, and, and you need to do periodic clearing and cleaning out. But in the federal government, there's there really has never been that. It just completely... It always is increasing almost exponentially in size. There has been trimming over time, you know, um, with with Reagan, and, and we have fewer civil servants than we did. But at the same point, the, the scope of the work they have is so all-encompassing in our everyday life. And, you know, I really do hope that with the, with the, uh, the Chevron case today, that this is the beginning of a real undismantling of this administrative state. And it's, you know, it's really important that people understand that when we talk about the administrative state, this is where the power has been taken from you. You are the ones who gave your power to the federal government. It's a government of, by consent of the people, and it's yours to take it back. So well said. Project2025.org, building now for a conservative victory through policy, personnel, and training. Paul, I thank you and your team over there at the Heritage Foundation. I am between this and hopefully Chevron, we can really take back our country from this administrative state, and it would be a beautiful, beautiful thing for the republic. Paul Dans, thank you so much for joining me here today in Philadelphia. You are the director of the 2025 Presidential Transition Project, and we appreciate your time. Thank you, Rich. Take care. 
The Rich Zioli Show on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Uh, all right, I got a lot more to get to. Big six, uh, six o'clock hour coming up, including, by the way, an analysis of Chevron and how the Supreme Court uh, dealt with it today. We'll talk to our buddy Zach Smith about that a little bit later in the show today. Uh, tonight, I should say, around 630 or so. How did the court rule? But there's other stories, too, that I'm following, including racism in uh, chemistry uh, and breastfeeding. Obviously, there's that. Also, the federal government is going to spend $700,000 on trans-inclusive sex ed for 14-year-olds. Right. A costly program to create an inclusive teen pregnancy program for transgender boys. I'll get to that as well. Plus, we have more of the WEF, more audio from our friends at the World Economic Forum in Davos, where they continue to uh, stun us with all of their ideas to run the world. In fact, here is one of those uh, clips for you of one of the people at Davos trying to once again rule the world. Here is the Chinese prime minister discussing how we need to fully implement the UN 2030 agenda for sustainable development. Now, remember something. If Democrats get control of the White House, they're all in on this. Because in addition to allowing the bureaucrats to run our country, they will let the world run our country by just giving away U.S. sovereignty and turning around and saying, hey, we'll we'll join in whatever. If it's fighting disease X, if it's the Paris Climate Accord, whatever it is. And this is the goal of Davos to surrender sovereignty of every country around the world and join in as one united world, uh, much to Woodrow Wilson's vision from the uh, 19-teens, and um, have the decisions made by really a global council. I mean, it is something truly out of a Bond movie. And when I hear the prime minister of China talk about this, or the premier of China talk about this, um, I'm, I'm very concerned, as should you cut 18. My fourth suggestion is to strengthen cooperation on green development to actively tackle climate change worldwide. Humanity still faces many challenges in addressing climate change and promoting green and low-carbon transition. Talks about the need for stronger cooperation on climate governance are often accompanied by actions of erecting barriers to green trade. Some high-quality and efficient green and low-carbon technologies and products cannot flow freely. It is important that we uphold the principle of common but differentiated responsibilities, better synergize our green development strategies, remove various barriers in this field, and jointly work for a complete transition to a greener economy and society. We need to fully implement the UN 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development, strengthen global development cooperation, bridge development gaps, and create new cooperation highlights in areas such as poverty alleviation, food security, and industrialization, so as to benefit the people of all countries with more fruits of cooperation. See that? Exactly what I mean. It's even scarier when you listen to it in Chinese. Uh, 855-839-1210 on Twitter at Rich Zioli. Big fourth and final hour coming up straight ahead. Listen, you want to lose weight? 
I don't blame you. And there's lots of different ways to do it. But I want you to do it the right way, the healthy way, the guaranteed way with NJ Diet. That's right, NJDiet.com. You will lose the weight for good, guaranteed, 20 to 40 plus pounds in only 40 days time, guaranteed. See, NJ Diet's all natural. There's no shots, no hormones. You don't have to worry about getting a certain face. I saw uh, Jillian Michaels talking about the face of a certain drug that uh, actually by taking those shots has the effect of changing your physical face i saw that the other day and i laughed thinking how many people right now are taking shots for weight loss there's all kinds of side effects with that but nj diet's all natural and guaranteed it works with your body chemistry and your your body chemistry is different from everybody else's so why not have a plan that's customized for you and that's what you'll get just reach out to them today by going to njdiet.com, njdiet.com, or 855-5-NJ-DIET. You'll lose the weight for good. You'll feel great, and it's guaranteed. You have nothing to lose but the fat, and you will burn the fat, and you will keep it off. 855-5-NJ-DIET or njdiet.com. Rich Zioli, weekday afternoons, 3 to 7, Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, and on the free Odyssey app. WOGL HD3 Philadelphia from the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. The revolution will be broadcast. This is the next generation of talk. Now on Talk Radio 1210 WPHD, Rich Zioli. Texas is told, no, you have to let the federales in. No surprise there, of course, as the federal government invokes the supremacy clause. The budget battle heats up at the White House, and Chevron is the uh, is the big deal before the United States Supreme Court today. Welcome back to the show. Glad you're here today. 855-839-1210 on Twitter, at Rich Zioli. Thank you for being here today. we got a lot going on, a lot going on. And we're covering it all for you. The WEF, we're covering the uh, budget battle, and we're covering, of course, the looming New Hampshire primary, plus the looming snow that we might be getting on Friday. Uh, two to three, maybe four inches. Cool. Very exciting. I like it. Don't forget, on February 7th is our big event with Terry Hayes. I'm excited for that. I'm looking forward to it, and I would love to see you there. So please join us for that. Just go to 1210WPHT.com and get your ticket. Terry Hayes is a brilliant author. I am loving his book, I Am Pilgrim. I love it. It's absolutely fantastic. And Wednesday, February 7th at 7 p.m., excuse me, at the Rotwith Theater at Rosemont College. We're going to have a wonderful time. We're going to talk about um, uh, the CIA, Iran, the inner workings of the intelligence community writ large. It's going to be great. If you read his book, I Am Pilgrim, it was um, truly to this day one of the best books I've ever read in my entire life. And I'm loving Year of the Locust. I, I just can't put it down. Last night I was up reading it till I think 1.30 in the morning. So you're going to love getting a copy of that signed by Terry Hayes and have a great conversation. And tickets are very reasonable as well and include the book and the conversation. Because, you know, whenever whenever I do these events, they always we always have fun talking about different things. And he's got a great story. He worked on all kinds of movies and wrote different movies, produced them, Road Warrior, Mad Max. Um, we'll, we'll have a lot of fun. So that's Wednesday, February 7th, 7 to 830 p.m. And uh, please join us for that. Get your tickets at 1210WPHT.com. Okay. All right. So uh, let me share with you a couple of other things I wanted to mention to you. 
Let's see here now. As we continue along with the WEF, uh, let's talk about that for a moment, shall we? And then at 6.30 tonight, we have a guest. We're going to talk about Chevron. Um, the theme of today's show, of course, is dismantling the administrative state and also protecting America from the evil Bond villains in Davos who want to control everything and run everything. Here is um, a WEF speaker claiming that farming and fishing is ecocide. Yes, farming and fishing. I told you these people want us all to eat bugs. I told you this. And I don't know why the bugs don't have a good lobbyist, because if I were a bug, I would definitely get a good lobbyist, because it seems like nobody minds eating us. I mean, fish don't have feelings. Nirvana told us that. And yet, bugs, I guess, don't have feelings, but yet you can't eat fish, but you can eat bugs. I don't understand the distinction, but nevertheless, cut 22. I mean, ecocide as a word is becoming more, it's becoming better known around the world. And the concept is generally mass damage and destruction of nature. Um, but legally speaking, um, what our organization and other collaborators aim to do is to have this recognized legally as a serious crime. Because one of the issues that sort of pervades all of this discussion is that we have a kind of cultural, very ingrained habit of not taking damage to nature as seriously as we take damage to people and property. Um, and that, I mean, you know, if you're campaigning for human rights, at least you know mass murder, torture, all of these things are serious crimes. But there's no equivalent in the environmental space. Um, and so, and, and you know, unlike a, an international crime like genocide that in, involves a specific intent, with ecocide what we see is actually what people are trying to do, what businesses are trying to do is make money, is, you know, is farm, is fish, is do all of these things that are um, you know, producing energy and so on um, as well. But what's it, what's missing is the awareness and the conscience around the side effects, around the collateral damage that happens with that. Yes, that is Jojo Meta from Stop Ecocide Now. Now, look, uh, as much as anybody, I like a good chocolate-covered grasshopper, deep-fried, of course, but... I really think that this is part of the bigger World Economic Forum agenda, which, of course, is to control every aspect of the economy. Because you notice when all these people talk about um, spending anywhere from $3 trillion to what John Kerry wants to spend, which is $5 trillion a year for the next 30 years, and they talk about all the stuff they want to buy, think about all the people that make money off that. The people that make solar panels and windmills and, yes, all the, the, the batteries for the cars and all of it. And China's all in because China has the – and I learned this from Terry Hayes' book, The Year of the Pilgrim – excuse me, The Year of the Locust. China has the, the largest supply of rare minerals in the world. And so that's why China is all in on this, because every every electric car battery has to come from the rare earth minerals from China eventually. I mean, yeah, they're in other parts of the world, too. And believe me, they use slave labor in all those instances. But, you know, China really sees the opportunity there to make some cash. So China, even though they're the world's largest polluter, and now they have the new COVID cousin, the cousin Eddie of COVID, with a 100 percent kill rate in mice— what could possibly go wrong? Um, China's all in, you know, on this new agenda, this world agenda from the World Economic Forum. They're all in. 
And remember, uh, U.S. Special uh, Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry, spoke with Bloomberg News, and his horse face was very, very uh, nervous and wrinkly as he talked about the green transition is irrevocable, and this is going to be forced. Uh, <laughs> there's no choice here, kids. You're going to like this. You're going to take it, and you're going to like it. Cut number five. The marketplace is going to support this transition. And I think it's irrevocable now. There's no question about whether or not the world is going to get to a low carbon, no carbon economy. We're going to get there. The only question is, are we going to get there in time to not be ravaged by the worst consequences of the climate crisis? Now, he said that from his private jet, or he thought of that from his private jet, actually, while he was eating private jet peanuts or whatever they have on private jets. I don't know. I don't fly them. I don't even fly first class. That's Matt DeSanct, the traitorous who flies first class, not me. I'm a man of the people and coach. When you took off on Monday, did you fly, fly first class out of curiosity? I did not, no. Just, just boarded a plane just to, you had to write a paper, right? Well, I didn't. No, I didn't have to write a paper. It was a uh, intensive learning weekend. Did you just fly first class just to do intensive learning, just to <laughs> constant, you know, I concentrate? And- yeah, sometimes I'll just book flights so I can experience first class, I, and then just hop on to the very next flight and go back home. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't blame you. But um, John Kerry has you beat with his private jet. <laughs> now, this is why I love Javier Mele because that guy he flies commercial like me because he's a man of the people. All right. I'm flying commercial, too. I'm not in a private jet. It would be nice if anyone has one and wants to give me a ride. Let me know. I, I don't think any, I don't think anyone does. But your people, <laughs> Harvard, a Harvard professor named. Uh, now, how do I say this? Naomi Oreskes. Sounds close enough to me. Did you have Professor Oreskes in not. one of your elite, privileged Harvard classes? No, I did not have her as a professor. Mm-hmm. Uh, she refused to answer how she got to Davos, and uh, <laughs> I don't know how she got to Davos. Maybe she took a <laughs> canoe. She called uh, Twitter a channel for disinformation, and she refused to say if it should be censored, but obviously that's what she believes. She briefly answered some questions from Avi Yamini of Rebel News. Uh, cut number eight. How are you doing, ma'am? I'm good, but I'm How rushing. did you get here today? I'm rushing to a session. I'm sorry. How Can did I talk? you get here? What was your carbon footprint to be here today? It's terrible, and I'm, I'm a climate activist, and I'm working on the inside, so... You're working, how are you working on the inside? Uh, I'm working on litigation against fossil fuel companies and trying to get the good companies to do the right thing. And, and what you said yesterday about X, you feel like X. What, what's wrong with X? What a scary name that even is, right? <laughs> um, oh, where do I start? <laughs> so much disinformation on that channel. Um, do you think we so, should censor X? I'm not to answer that question. Ah, but other people at Davos did. They said it should be censored. We need to empower the government more to deal with disinformation, which is ironic, of course, since today is the day that we know the United States Department of Justice finally acknowledged what we all know, which is that the Hunter Biden laptop is real and it's spectacular. And by the way, the pictures on there are also real and disgusting, but some of them are spectacular. And the Department of Justice acknowledges that the Hunter Biden laptop is real, even though we were all told that it was disinformation. But at Davos, at the WEF, they're actually talking more and more about the fact that they need the government of the world to crack down on disinformation, and so much so that we shouldn't even have debate anymore. So let's turn back to horseface John Kerry, who looked quite serious today as he said that we shouldn't even have debates over climate science at this point 
Because once the elites have decided what is science, whether it is that uh, COVID came from an undercooked bat burger with a side of pangolin fries and a raccoon dog aioli, or uh, they've decided that six feet for social distancing is what you should do, even though they have no reason to say six feet. Why not five feet? Why not four and a half? Who knows? Who cares? They've decided it's science. That's the way it goes. And there shall be no debate on climate anymore cut 26 Please. well david thank you very very much and um ladies and gentlemen uh and particularly uh the members why of this do you use gender? really capable uh and you will find a hugely informed panel so i'm almost embarrassed in laying out uh some initial thoughts, and David himself just now gave you a pretty good summary of what is at stake. Uh, and if I repeat a little bit, uh, forgive me, but we, it can bear repetition, folks. Um, I'm trying to find a way every day to be able to communicate to people what the urgency really is. And why it is that um, we need to more and more take seriously uh, what the scientists are telling us and what Mother Nature is telling us on a pretty regular basis. Why does she get gender? Uh, last year, 2023, which David referred to, was literally the most disruptive, climate disruptive, most climate consequential negative year in human history. And as we all know, if you measure, uh, you know, there's a, there's a uh, important uh, body of evidence now that's been laid out that really uh, doesn't leave us any space for debate or, frankly, procrastination any longer. There are millions of there people. There it is. You see, there's millions. no debate anymore. All right. The debate is over. So part of what the left wants is for you to shut up and do what you're told and not argue with anybody, including all the vegans who remind you that they're vegan every five minutes. By the way, the only question I have is if you're talking to somebody who is a CrossFit vegan, do they tell you they're vegan first or that they do CrossFit first? Does anyone know the answer to that question? It's definitely vegan. You think they? You think they let you know that they're vegan before they let you know that they do CrossFit? Uh, yeah, vegan's like a whole personality. CrossFit is too, but no, I it actually, is too. Yeah, vegan, I, I think takes uh, takes priority. So a CrossFit vegan, you think of the two, the first thing they'll tell you is that they're vegan and that they also do CrossFit. Absolutely, because I. <laughs> I think yeah. my theory is vegans believe they're better than everyone else. And CrossFit... Oh, 100%. <laughs> no doubt. CrossFit's just a brag. Mm, that's a good point. Yeah, now, what What if you have a gluten-free CrossFit vegan? Which one... Which order would that be that they would tell you what they are? I still think... Because gluten-free people make it a point to tell you they're gluten-free, even if you're not eating with them. They'll find a way. You know, in case in case they walk by and smell like gluten, like there might be gluten, like somebody might might buy, I don't know, gluten perfume or cologne or something. Like they'll tell you that. So a a gluten free CrossFit vegan, they tell you in which order you go: vegan, CrossFit, gluten free. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Henry, what do you think? Yeah, which, I, I which, concur with that. You that, concur with that? that? Order, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's probably how I would think that would work out well. But but you know, I, regardless, vegan comes first in every way, shape, and form, letting people know. 
Oh yeah, that's a whole identity. That's not just a diet. No, it's not. It's it's not. It's not. <laughs> it's not a diet, and it's a lifestyle. And yes, they do <laughs> think that they are better than us. You think you're better than us? Yes, yes, we do. Now snack on this cricket and shut up. But I'm gluten free, right? It's in gluten free breadcrumbs. And I can't have oil because of my skin. Well, don't worry about it. It's also in oil uh, air fryer. An air fryer <laughs> gluten-free deep-fried cricket. That sounds delicious. Coming to a restaurant near you just in time for Philadelphia Restaurant Week. Can a vegan eat a cricket? I don't know what the hell they eat. I mean, they eat soy. Everything they eat is soy, which is why the man boobs. But the thing about the soy, you have to remember, is that technically that comes from, what, like a green bean or a jelly bean or what is it? Soy, soybean, right? Yeah. How do you know soybeans don't have feelings? How do you know a soybean tree doesn't have feelings? <laughs> well, I've been told to talk to my trees if I want to help them grow. I, I've been told you talk to flowers. Uh, how do you know that a soybean tree doesn't have feelings? Hmm? Uh, the cricket definitely has feelings. <laughs> I don't think so, they can eat the cricket. So we just said they're gonna they're gonna send me gluten free gluten cologne gluten cologne. Is that really a thing? I hope so. I hope so too. Thank you, Brian. I would I would love some uh, gluten cologne. Sounds delicious, <laughs> but it better be made by vegans. It just smells like bread. Yeah. Well, I, I semolina with uh, with sesame seeds obviously is my preferred. You know, come on, you walk into a bakery like that. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. If the world eventually one day we're all to eat bugs, that's coming. Um, But if I went to the doctor tomorrow and the doctor said to me, I have bad news, you're celiac, I would kill myself on the spot. I would. (laughs) I would. I would I would just end my life at that point because I, I can't I can't go through life without eating Italian bread and pizza the the real way I, I would just end it at that point I'd be like you know what it's been a good ride it's been fun but I'm checking out this is where I check out you could still eat steak though I but ste- I'm not talking about steak I'm talking about bread what does steak I, yeah, have that's to do with saying you could still eat steak even with the with celiac disease. But steak is not bread. Why are you why are you bringing steak into the conversation? <laughs> you said you would take you take your own life. I'm saying there's still good foods out there that you'd be able to consume. And I wouldn't want to live if I couldn't have a nice piece of bread with my steak. Are you not following me? I I get it, but I'm just saying I think it's an overreaction. You know what? I'll tell you what an overreaction is. Justin Trudeau, man-child Justin Trudeau, who is also, of course, the bastard love child of Fidel Castro. Um, no, you're going to let that go? You're going to let that, the Censorati's going to let that go? Sorry, I was reading a text message that you just sent me. Um, oh, good. Yeah, that That's is- what I got to do, Henry, from the future. If I just distract him, I can, I can be free to declare that Justin Trudeau is, in fact, the bastard love child of Fidel Castro. <laughs> don't it's don't just that, that easy. No, it's we- just that easy. He's distracted. Like, it's the attention span of a gnat over there. Oh, well, look, a shiny object. I don't, know how he, I don't know how you send text messages while you're in the middle of a monologue. Because I'm very good at multitasking, that's how. Clearly. So, man-child Justin Trudeau, who is uh, very, bears a striking... I'll just say this. He loves a good Cuban sandwich. And he uh, <laughs> loves a good Cuban sandwich with bugs instead of ham. Because he's also a nut. Anyway, Justin Trudeau says that he's very, very scared of another Trump term. And uh, you got to hear what a UFC fighter named Sean Strickland just told a Canadian journalist to go blank himself after the journalist tried asking a gotcha question about the LGBTQ++IA every letter of the alphabet community. 
We'll play that for you upon my return. 855-839-1210 on Twitter at Rich Zioli. A lot to get to, including, of course... What is going to happen with Chevron? That is the big story of the day today, brought to you by our buddy, Dr. Mike Venaria. Will the Supreme Court overturn the Chevron deference doctrine, which would go a long way towards dismantling the administrative state? Let's hope so. We're coming right back. The Zioli Show, on your schedule, from Talk Radio 1210 WPHT in the free Odyssey app. Well, you know, Henry, you, you scored a double win on this one. Your outstanding musical selections. Not only did I reference that line in my previous segment, but Fish are at the epicenter of a landmark case before the United States Supreme Court that has the chance, the potential, to smash the administrative state to pieces. Welcome back to the show. Glad you're here today. 855-839-1210 on Twitter, at Rich Zioli. Uh, Chevron, the Chevron Deference Doctrine, which, as Road Warrior reminded us in the 3 o'clock hour, three and a half hours ago. Uh, yes, at least one Supreme Court justice recused herself, Katanji Brown Jackson. But regardless of the fact, it's still a important case uh, regardless. And here to talk about it with us, Zach Smith, legal fellow and manager of the Supreme Court and Appellate Advocacy Program in the Heritage Foundation's Edwin R. Meese Center. Zach, welcome back to the show, my friend. How you doing? I'm doing well, Rich. Thanks so much for having me on this evening. Absolutely. You know, uh, I'm sure you filed this case like I did today. I, I, I enjoy listening to the oral arguments. I always have. I'm not an attorney, but uh, years ago I used to drive around. This is a true story. In high school, there was this thing called May It Please the Court. They were oral arguments from landmark Supreme Court cases, and I would drive around listening to them. And let me just tell you, chicks dug that big time in high school. <laughs> well, I can only imagine, and I think you were uh, certainly on the right track, Rich, uh, <laughs> listening to that uh, material. Uh, but look, you know, your description of the cases that the court heard today was absolutely spot on. I think this is a very underappreciated case, a very underappreciated issue, this issue of Chevron deference, uh, but it has a great impact on all of our lives. And it's Essentially, what courts have been doing for many, many years now is when a law isn't clear or it's ambiguous, courts have been deferring to unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats to say what that law means. Now, you can imagine the problems uh, that this causes. Uh, bureaucrats, of course, will try to enhance their own power, uh, take really, I think, radical actions in some instances, and yet courts will defer to this under the Chevron doctrine. And so now, as you mentioned, there are uh, two cases actually in front of the court, uh, one where Kintanji Brown-Jackson is recused, the Loper Bright case, one where she is not recused, the relentless case, but the issues in the two cases are essentially the same, and the court is being asked uh, to overturn this very pernicious Chevron doctrine. You know, the problem is that, and I think that Justice Antonin Scalia and, and Justice Gorsuch references today, um, at, at the time, he thought Chevron was a good thing. And then as time went on, he realized the unintended consequences of it. And the unintended consequences are that the administrative state has expanded in such a way that now Great example, Barack Obama saying, I have a pen and I have a phone. So if I can't get Congress to pass the things I want, I will use my pen and my phone. And 
I will have my agencies promulgate rules. And, and, and we went from having, you know, a few rules a year in the Federal Register to now something astonishing like 40,000 new rules promulgated in the Federal Register. Uh, the numbers are astonishing. And that's what happens. Right? They, they have the weight of law. They come with fines. They come with jail time in many instances. And the only way that Congress even though Congress is empowered under the Constitution to actually pass the laws. But the only way Congress can deal with a rule they don't like is to pass a law to undo a rule. And that, you know, that is mind-boggling in and of itself, but it shows you what really is at the heart of this case, I think, which is an administrative state of unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats who have decided, look, regardless of the agenda of the president, regardless of the agenda of the cabinet secretary, we can create rules to get our way. And these rules have the absolute weight of law. And then um, we can add on to those rules. And Congress can't do a damn thing about it because getting them to pass a law to undo a rule. (laughs) Good luck. Right. Well, look, I want to be clear. The current status of things actually benefits many members of Congress, too. They essentially get to kick the the bucket down the road. They get to pass the buck. Uh, When these bureaucrats make these unpopular decisions, they get to point and say, I didn't do it. They did it. And so what we're fundamentally talking about here, Rich, is who has power in our government? Who should have the power? And there is a very candid admission today, an oral argument, that if the Chevron doctrine is repealed, if the court does away with it, that would give more power back to Congress, more power back to the courts, where the framers of our Constitution uh, you know, thought this type of power would reside. And, and, you know, what's really troubling, I think, is when you look at this Chevron doctrine in the larger context, Context and the context that these agencies are not only passing their own rules and regulations, they're also enforcing them. They also have in-house judges uh, adjudicating whether there have been violations of these rules. It's a complete violation of the separation of powers. Uh, and, but look, I think a first good step, a big step on rolling back the current growth of the administrative state is to do it that way with the Chevron Doctrine. Yeah, and also the uh, the Vision 2025 at the Heritage Foundation is, is working on for the transition, which I think would be fantastic. Uh, this One of the particular cases has to deal with this idea that herring fishing boats have to have monitors on board to monitor their fishing of herring, and that they have to right. pay them out of their own pocket, and it comes out to be anywhere from seven to 750 bucks a day. And a lot of these uh, these herring fishermen have turned around and said, look, that may, be, that may exceed our profits here. If Congress were to debate a bill that said herring fishermen have to pay for the cost of their own federal monitors, that bill would never make it out of committee. And that's the thing, right? I mean, it's such a ludicrous idea. You would tick off so many people. There's nobody who would ever vote for that. But there are other things happening right now in rules that don't get as much attention that I think hopefully Chevron can address. One of them is the Biden administration's their uh, announcement they're going to rewrite Title IX. I mean, Title IX is a law passed by Congress, and here's the Biden administration. They want to issue a rule to radically change Title IX to include transgender students. But that again, that's something that Congress should do. But a lot of Congress people don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole, to your point. So they're, they're happy if the Department of Education promulgates a rule that changes a law that they passed. But my God, Zach, I mean, that would be such a fundamental change from Title IX as it was passed by the legislature that you, you, right. you can't even conceive they are the same thing. But the arrogance of Chevron gives the bureaucrats the thinking that, well, they can just get away with it. No, that's absolutely right. And look, I think that's an important point you're making as well, Rich. 
Chevron deference impacts many areas of our lives that most people don't even think about on a day-to-day basis. I think that's an outgrowth of the uh, how vast the administrative state currently is, but everything from where you bank, what type of gas you get, you know, the list goes on and on and on. All of that is potentially impacted by Chevron deference because all of those activities are subject to federal regulation. And what's even more egregious, Rich, and something that I don't think has been talked about as part of this debate, many states have their own version of Chevron deference as well. And while that wouldn't be affected by the Supreme Court's ruling uh, in these Loper-Bryant relentless cases, you know, that's certainly something to keep in mind. And I suspect and hope uh, that there will be efforts made to roll back state level Chevron deference as well. Yeah, uh, good point on that. Let's come back to that for a quick second, Zach. Why do you think at at the time in the 19, I think it was 84 when the decision came out, why do you think Scalia, who's a guy who's always so fearful of the separation of powers being abused and and fearful of, of, of the abuse of government by the executive, why at the time did he think Chevron was a good idea? You know, there are different theories on this, uh, Rich. I think certainly the administrative state, even in the 80s, wasn't as uh, aggressive and the outgrowth hadn't been as pernicious as we've seen today. As you said, Justice Scalia came to see the error of his ways toward the end of his life, toward the end of his tenure on the court. Uh, But look, you know, I think we sitting today, you know, almost 40 years, 30, 40 years after Chevron deference or some form of it first came about, we see the problems that this approach causes. And in fact, our oral argument today, Chief Justice John Roberts, who I don't always agree with uh, on his decisions, you know, he made the point that, you know, even under Chevron, which is being supported right now as being steady, not changing the law, you know, kind of keeping things on an even kill, he said that's not true because every four years when a new administration comes in, agencies change how they interpret the laws, and if courts are deferring to those changed interpretations, essentially every four years you get different interpretations of the law, and that cannot uh, stand. Uh, so regardless of why Justice Scalia thought you know, this was a good idea or why he wrote the opinion in the way he did, I think today we can say it's been an utter failure and needs to be done away with. Yeah, well said. You know, I always think about these bureaucrats like like cockroaches. You know, they they, they embed themselves into the bureaucracy and they, they know they're going to outlast the conservative president or the conservative right. cabinet secretary. And I mean, how many times over the years do you think they've chuckled? The EPA is a great example, right, where they've chuckled when a, a, a new administrator has come in saying we're going to make the EPA business friendly. We're going to we're going to work with businesses. We're not going to punish them. How many of those bureaucrats five floors below the administrator's office chuckle to themselves? going, we've heard this before, we were here before you, we'll be here after you, we're not worried about it. That is really at the heart of the problem. Yeah. I mean, listen, if you listen to some veterans of Donald Trump's administration, they will frankly tell you they were shocked at the level of recalcitrance uh, they experienced by career staff in the various administrative agencies. They expected some resistance. Uh, They knew they were facing an uphill battle. But the scope of the resistance, the tools available to these unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats to thwart uh, an elected president's agenda was shocking even to them. That's part of the reason things like Schedule F, reforming the civil service rules, very important. And I think, you know, regardless of of what happens in the next election, you know, that should be a top priority uh, for any incoming administration.
You know, the, uh, the, the the other point, too, is that not only did this president have people in his own administration trying to undermine him, he also had people in his own uh, executive branch of government who were trying to destroy his presidency. I mean, we think about Chevron, but it, it, it's even bigger than just rules that are created and, and, and new regulations is a mindset, a bureaucratic mindset that I think has embedded itself into the deep state where you have, you know, the FBI, the Department of Justice, the uh, pick your three letter agency du jour, um, people like Fauci and others, who, who think that whatever they can do is beyond reproach. There, there will be no consequences to their actions. So if they abuse their power, if they abuse their job, if they do these things, so what? Nothing happens to them. That's the other problem here that I think Chevron has fueled, an unintended consequence of that, where bureaucrats think, not only am I okay with my job, but if I'm caught, so what? No, no, no big deal. I mean, Peter Strzok right. is a, a free man today, Peter Strzok. Lisa Page, you know, Fauci, I mean, Rand Paul says he should go to prison for what he did. But, but he doesn't, he's not going to go to prison. That's the other problem here, too, is, is holding bureaucrats accountable. I know that Chevron in and of itself won't do that. But maybe Chevron together with the, the, the Vision 2025 that you guys have launched for the new administration, maybe these two things coming together, smashing the administrative state, could go a long way way towards at least establishing the notion, hey, bureaucrats, you don't get to run this country. Well, that's certainly the goal. Uh, I think our elected representatives in Congress and the White House, certainly, uh, that's where the framers anticipated major decisions would be made. That's where major decisions should be made. Uh, but to your point, I think looking at the reaction of this obscure federal agency that's uh, at issue in this case, looking at their reaction to this lawsuit really emphasizes your point. When they were sued, instead of saying they were wrong, instead of trying to defend on the merits, before they did any of that, they ultimately repealed the regulation, refunded any money they had received and said nothing to see here. Now, of course, that would prevent the core issue of Chevron from making its way to the courts, from being litigated and adjudicated. And that in and of itself shows that many of these bureaucrats understand just how powerful, just how important Chevron deference is to them maintaining their current level of political power. Zach Smith, legal fellow and manager of the Supreme Court and Appellate Advocacy Program in the Heritage's Edwin R. Meese Center. Thanks, my friend. I really appreciate your analysis today. It's been fun. Thanks so much for having me on, Rich. Take care. The Rich Zioli Show on Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. So Bridget had her appointment yesterday, or today actually, this morning with Dr. Mike Venaria. He was fitting her for a new mouth guard. Um, my whole family goes to Dr. Mike Venaria, and we have been going for years. I was I had a procedure last week, as you know. He's a great guy. He's a great dentist, and he is the master of dental implants. Look, when it comes to your smile, please don't mess around here. It's your smile. You deserve to have a beautiful smile. And Dr. Mike Venaria excels at complicated dental dental implants. That's really his specialty right there, dental implants. If you've had an estimate for dental work, please get a second opinion with Dr. Mike. You can trust him. He's honest. And for over 10 years, he's been voted as the top dentist in New Jersey for that reason. Two offices to serve you, Cinnamonson and Woodbury, right over the bridge, ready to help you get the perfect smile you deserve. This is a new year and time for a new you. And forget going to the gym and you know, doing a smile 
tells the world you're happy, a smile sends all kinds of messages to people, you deserve it. So do something special for yourself by giving yourself that million-dollar smile. Dr. Mike Venaria, VenariaDental.com, V-A-N-A-R-I-A, my buddy, my dentist, my friend, and the master of dental implants, Dr. Mike Venaria, VenariaDental.com. Thanks for listening to the Seoli Show podcast from Talk Radio 1210 WPHT and the Odyssey app. Breaking news. The big story of the show brought to you by Dr. Mike Venaria. I will be on Fox News tomorrow morning, it looks like, with uh, Dana Perino. So looks like around 10 o'clock. They asked me if I was available. Um, I'll, I'll confirm and tweet it out when it's confirmed. But anyway, that's what things are looking like today. I don't know exactly what we're going to talk about. But um, if they ask, I'll do it, obviously. The other thing, too, I wanted to mention is that the Biden administration is in some hot water here. So uh, House Republicans are investigating whether Bank of America voluntarily turned over to the FBI a list of customers who made transactions in the days on and around January 6, 2021, the high holy day of the left. And those who purchased firearms with the bank's credit and debit cards. Why? There were no firearms at the Capitol on January 6th. And the pipe bomb that was found was found by a plainclothes Capitol Police officer. So the House Judiciary Committee, its subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government and the subcommittee on the administrative state, regular regulatory reform and antitrust are conducting oversight of the FBI's receipt of information about American citizens from private entities. Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio, uh, who chairs the Weaponization Subcommittee, and Representative Tom Massey of Kentucky, who chairs the other subcommittee on the administrative state, told Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan in a letter obtained by Fox News Digital that they want more information on the bank's cooperation with the FBI. Quote, we require your cooperation in investigating these facts. So they asked for all records related to the provision of customer data by January Uh, By June 8th, excuse me. The investigation comes after an FBI whistleblower testified to the committee that Bank of America, with no directive from the FBI, data mined its customer base by compiling customers who used a Bank of America debit or credit card between January 5th and January 7th, 2021. Why? Nobody used guns at the Capitol on January 6th. What 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 is the point of that? It was not an armed insurrection. That's the point. There, there was no that's the that's why it's not even an insurrection. I mean, typically, if you're going to have a revolution, people bring guns. People usually bring guns to a revolution. Jordan and Massey explained to Moynihan that the FBI whistleblower told the committee that um, it was provided to the FBI voluntarily and without any legal process. And all these customer names were turned over. The committee was told separately that people who had previously purchased the firearm with a Bank of America product were elevated to the top of the list regardless of when and where the purchase was made. Retired FBI supervisory intelligence analyst George Hill was one FBI whistleblower who shared the information. He said Bank of America compiled the list, and then on top of that list, they put anyone who had purchased a firearm during any date on the list, and he said it's a huge list. Bank of America created targeted transactions in Washington, D.C. and the surrounding area. The testimony was corroborated by the testimony of his former FBI supervisor, 
special agent in charge of the Boston field office. He testified that he learned of Bank of America's move through another special agent in charge of counterterrorism in Boston. Jordan and Massey wrote together and said the following. The testimony is alarming. According to veteran FBI employees, Bank of America provided without any legal process private financial information of Americans to the most powerful law enforcement entity in the country. This information appears to have had no individualized nexus to particularized criminal conduct, but was rather a data dump of Bank of America customers' transactions over a three-day period. This information undoubtedly included private details about Bank of America customers who had nothing at all to do with the events of January the 6th. Well, look, the TSA is monitoring you if you flew into the Capital Region uh, in that time period, whether or not you were even in the District of Columbia, whether or not you were at the Capitol building. They're, they're monitoring you. You're, you're, you're on a list somewhere. The, the left will never give this up, and they will continue to use it, just like I told you on January 7th. They will continue to use this as an excuse to spy on you, surveil you, know all the details, get all your information, all of it. All right, listen, the great one, Mark Levin, is up next. Keep the conversation going on Twitter. Get your tickets to see me and Terry Hayes on February 7th. Have a great rest of your night. Thank you for listening. See you tomorrow. Rich Zioli, weekday afternoons, 3 to 7, Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, and on the free Odyssey app. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.